Greetings, everyone, and I hope all is well. Today's episode brings seven spine-tingling stories that are sure to give you nightmares. Find a comfy spot, grab your favorite beverage or snack, and settle into the world of Mr. Creep's mind. I was trapped in my school during a storm. Something got in. Written by Wolf McGrath. The thunder outside my third hour class was soothing. It was close to spring break, so we were just watching a Disney or Pixar movie. I can't remember which company made it. It was Wally. Nobody was paying attention, either sleeping or on their phones. Heck, even the teacher was on his phone. The rain began coming down harder. I was seated by the window, and all I was doing was watching the rain. April storms like this were common where I lived, so it was nothing out of the ordinary. The bell rang to let us out of third hour and go to lunch. In my school, you can go outside during lunch period if you don't have to eat. It can be cool when you just aren't hungry. Of course, like usual, there were some of those kids, you know the ones, that thought it would be funny to go outside and just get soaked. I checked my phone while eating, so I didn't notice that they hadn't come back all lunch period. I got a weather alert on my phone that we were under a tornado watch. Looking outside, it seemed about right. When the bell rang, I tossed my tray and I headed to P.E. The kids who had gone outside were supposed to be in that class. However... When the teacher did roll call, all three that had gone outside were absent. A couple of us were confused because we had just seen them. One kid spoke up to say that she had seen them go outside during lunchtime. The teacher sighed and pressed a button to talk to the office. Hello? A voice rang out over the speaker. Yeah, our Ethan, Luke, and Nate inside. My students said that they were here just a couple of minutes ago. There was a silence over the intercom. We all stood around awkwardly, wondering when we were going to play Capture the Flag. The voice came back over the intercom again after a couple of seconds. And you said they're not with you. No, they're not here. We heard the intercom hang up after that. The teacher assumed that the kids were running around in the halls, and that the office staff had to try and find them. We started to capture the flag, and it usually only takes about two rounds of the game before the bell rings and we have to go. However, the bell didn't ring, we ended up playing a third round before we realized something was wrong. Our attention snapped to the clock, which was 13 minutes after the class was supposed to end. Just as we were preparing to leave, the intercom rang out. 
Attention teachers, keep your students in class until further notice. My stomach sank. I was always a nervous kid. This made me nervous like many other things do. The teacher looked confused for a second, before switching the game to Martian Tag. We played for a while before getting tired. He conceded and put on a movie for us to watch. Space Jam. A couple of minutes in, we heard a blood-freezing shriek from outside the classroom. The teacher naturally got up to investigate, and all of us were staring at the door in fear, wondering what could have made that noise. A kid that I didn't know too well, Kai, snuck over to the door to look out of the small window. He stared for a couple of seconds before pushing the door open and leaving. I had no idea what to do, but after three other students did the same, I freaked out. Everyone in the room was starting to wonder what was happening. So, we made our way to the door. All 14 of us left, and we peeked out the window. It was just the empty hallway. It was still raining outside, and it was getting unnaturally loud. Well, I'm going home, a kid said before pushing us out of the way and leaving the gym. I wanted to get out of there at that point too. Slowly everyone filed out of the gym and went off in different directions. All I had on me was my phone. But that was the only important thing I brought to school. I decided to just head straight for the exit, as did one other person, Max. He was annoying, but in a way that makes everyone happier. It's hard to explain. We didn't talk much as we rushed for the front exit. When we did make it, the office next to it was abandoned. Nobody was in sight, and the lights were off. We looked outside into the rain, and we weren't able to see anything at all. It was raining way too hard. I decided to wait until the rain had slowed down before I left. However, Max did not share this same line of thought. He opened the door, and he walked into the rain. I checked my phone, and like you would expect, there was no service. I put it back into my pocket, because I didn't have the password for the school Wi-Fi on me. I didn't have any idea what to do while waiting for the rain to stop, so I wandered the hallway. When I got into the area that had the 6th grade classes, I saw someone dart into a room. Faster than I could believe. You know how your vision clouds when you see something extremely startling? I hesitated in the hall, wondering if it was just a scared kid or what. I slowly made my way over to the door that it went into. Like many classroom doors, it had the tall and narrow window with wires in it. I peeked into the window, 
and saw a student crouched in a corner, sobbing. I slowly opened the door, and he immediately looked to the door. The fear on his face is still burned into my memory. He ran over to me and hugged me. Based on his size, I would assume that he was in 6th grade. After less than a second, he let go of me realizing what he had done. I I'm sorry, it's just that I don't know where anybody else is, and there's something scary in the halls. He said through tears, sniffling every couple of seconds. I felt sorrow while looking at him. I decided I would make sure that he got out of here as well. Listen to me. We're going to get out of this, alright? I'll protect you until the storm is over. He calmed down a bit and nodded. I looked around outside of the classroom, wondering what he meant by something scary. I thought maybe it was what made that horrible shriek that we had heard earlier. I let him out of the classroom, and I wandered the halls once again. The silence was deafening. I started to panic wondering what had happened to the rest of the students. As I rounded a corner, I saw what I'm sure the kid was referring to when he had mentioned something scary. I quickly ducked back, holding my breath. The kid who had told me that he was a junior was hiding behind me. I heard the footsteps of whatever it was that was in the hall. It was opening doors and looking inside. It was in the 7th grade hallway at the moment. As it opened a door, I heard someone scream, and then that hideous shriek that the monster made. I had ducked behind the corner too fast to have gotten a good look at it. The scream coming from the poor person in that room was quickly silenced. After which, the scream was replaced by the sound of meaty crunching. The hallway that I was in had a window to the outside. The rain had definitely slowed down, but I wasn't going to risk what was in the rain. I went back the other way. I forgot to mention... But at this point, the power was off in the school, and the light inside was dim in well-windowed areas. If there weren't any windows, then it was pretty much pitch black. I rounded another corner and I found myself staring down a black hallway. Under any other circumstances, I would have avoided it. But I heard the monster a ways back, and it was getting closer. I slowly made my way down the hallway. I grabbed the hand of Junior as to not lose where he was. I managed to find an unlocked door and I made my way in to try and hide from the monster. When I entered, I felt a book slam into my head. Ah, what the heck? I couldn't see anything in the room. And when I responded, I heard someone gasp in the darkness. They apologized. I had a headache from it. 
I reached over to the doorknob to try and find a way to lock it. Luckily, there was a small lock that prevented the doorknob from being turned. I was sure that the monster had heard me yell. My suspicions were confirmed when it slammed against the door, eliciting a scream from Junior. The monster tried the doorknob, but when it didn't open, it started to get violent. It was trying to break down the door. At this point, I accepted my inevitable death. But then an idea popped into my head. Some of the classrooms have a closet that lead into another classroom. I didn't want to turn on my flashlight so that the monster didn't know where we were going. I asked the kid if there was a closet in this room, to which I got no reply. There must be, I thought, because I realized that the kid was no longer in here. I stumbled around in the darkness, shaking from fear. I had to keep going through, for Junior at the very least. I managed to find the closet and I slipped in. I made my way to the next classroom, as the door from the previous one was destroyed. I heard it shatter. I realized my mistake, and I rushed over to the window in this classroom. I had no choice but to brave what was out in the rain. I tossed a book at the window, hoping to break it, but it hopelessly bounced off. I made a rash decision and I tried my hardest to punch out the window. It cracked. I tossed another punch, pushing through the pane, and the window broke. The glass deeply lacerated my hand. I hopped out, cutting my legs. As I turned around to grab Junior, the monster broke its way into the room. Junior reached out to me, but the monster was faster. I got a good look at it as it dragged Junior away. It was a massive mass of flesh, eyes, mouth, and hair. It grabbed Junior and it left the room. I went numb. The screams that Junior let out as it took him haunt my dreams to this day. I tried to figure out where I was outside. As the rain slowed to a drizzle, I was in the parking lot, where there had to be a dozen police cars and ambulances waiting. EMTs ran over to me when they saw me. From that point to the hospital, it was all a blur. My parents, police, government agents, I got asked questions from everybody that knew about what happened. In the end, I got no answers. All I knew was that 112 people were missing. I never knew what came of the monster or what happened to the people who disappeared in the rain. I left the town soon after and now I live in southern Indiana. That was all four years ago. I recently graduated high school and I tried to find out if the event was recorded online in some way or another. I couldn't find anything about it. No obituaries, nothing. 
any time that it rains now, I always get scared. My only hope is that, whatever the monster was, it didn't escape. I think my dreams show me the future. Most of us will be dead by next year. Written by, then, Odium. I guess I should start at the beginning. When I was younger, I suffered from bad nightmares. Really bad as in, I would wake up every night screaming, with my bedsheets wet from you know what. I assumed at first my parents thought that I would grow out of it. But by the age of six, with this still continuing, they finally caved in and took me to a professional. However, the professional didn't seem to know what to do as all his usual advice took no effect. At first, they assumed the professional himself was no good. But with continued failures from everyone they reached out to, they began to blame me. Desperate, they eventually reached out online to see if anyone had any similar experiences or advice. Nothing. They had all but given up when someone reached out to them. My dad told me that the email had no subject, and we were lucky that it didn't end up in spam. It was someone saying that he knew about my disorder, and that it was extremely rare, but he knew how to cure it. Except, it wouldn't come cheap. Fearing a scam... My parents asked him if he had any details of former clients and he obliged. All of them basically said the same. Whatever this guy did, it worked perfectly, letting them get full nights of rest again. So, suffice to say, my parents went for it. I don't really remember all too much of the experience to be honest. Obviously, I was still very young, so my thoughts at the time didn't go far beyond. He looked strange, which looking back I can see I wasn't wrong. He was almost homeless looking, yet walked and acted basically like royalty. It's odd to say the least. My dad said he almost changed his mind when the guy arrived thinking it must be a scam based on the guy alone, but luckily he relented. The man said that he needed it to be just me and him. No distractions and my parents couldn't be in the room. Obviously nowadays, that's very unlikely. Leaving your child alone with a stranger. But back then, things like that weren't exactly as big in the spotlight as they are now, I guess. Luckily, nothing like that actually happened to me, as far as I'm aware. I don't remember all that much of it. I'm not sure, but looking back, I believed what he used may have been a form of hypnosis, hence the memory loss. Then again, I was only seven, so it's possible that I just forgot. Sorry, I'm getting off topic. All I do remember is before he left the room, the man turned to me and spoke in a low voice. Now this bit, I do remember. 
his words have stuck with me all these years. Listen to me. Your family, those around you, they all think there's something wrong with you. A disability or something. You have to remember they are wrong. And they'll never accept it. But you have a gift, my friend. And with that, he was gone. I didn't see him leave. Neither did my parents. As my dad later told me, but that it was done. That night, I actually slept. A full, undisturbed night of sleep. As did my parents for the first time since I had been born. No nightmares, no dreams of any sort. Just peace. Obviously, we were all amazed. My parents tried to email the guy to thank him. But strangely, they couldn't find his original email or any of the follow-ups. There were none in their sent folder, either apparently, but they assumed it was just a glitch. Well, whatever. The important thing was that I could actually sleep. Not a single dream in sight. Until three years later. It was the night of my 10th birthday. I got into bed for what was bound to be another peaceful night and about 20 minutes later, I drifted off. But I dreamt. For the first time in three years, I dreamt. It wasn't a nightmare, but it was very, very realistic. I don't remember much of the dream. I never do. When I woke the day after all I remembered was seeing my dad dressed in a suit. We were outside and he was crying softly. His face illuminated by the rays of the setting sun, piercing the branches sprouting from a large horse chestnut tree beside him. It confused me. Not the dream itself, but the fact that I had a dream. The first time I could ever remember having a dream and now waking up screaming. I began to worry that whatever had been done was wearing off or something. I wanted to tell them something, but then a small voice in the back of my head told me not to. I had a gift and they wouldn't understand. If it happened again that night, I would tell them. But it didn't. That night, nothing. I slept the sleep of the dead and carried on doing so for a long time after. No dreams once again. One month later, my mom was involved in a three-car pileup and pronounced dead at the scene. I don't really remember the funeral or any of the preparations. I think when you're so young and full of so much grief, the brain tends to shut off. Even looking back now, it's hard to picture it. I do remember as they lowered her into the ground though. That's something that I can never forget. It was so peaceful in the graveyard. Seeing the dying sun's rays reflecting off the polished mahogany coffin. I didn't go back for a long time. My dad did, but I couldn't. When I finally did, nearly a year later, it was mid-autumn and I walked through the yellow and orange carpet of leaves alongside my dad. Their soft crunch cutting through the silence. I stared at the grave for a long time. Still full of sadness. Just before leaving, I saw something lying on the floor. 
it was a conqueror. Its shiny brown surface perfect against the surrounding discarded foliage. I used to collect these when I was younger and give them all to my mom. I picked it up and I put it on top of the grave. I dreamt again since then, but I never remembered any details of any significance. And then I did and I was 16. My exams approaching in the summer and like every single one of my classmates, I was stressed out. I remember falling into bed, tired out after spending the evening studying. That night, I dreamt again. I was tearing open the official looking envelope with my name on it, and I pulled out a sheet of paper. It showed a list of A's intersected with the occasional B and 1C. I heard myself cry out in surprise and joy and then I saw my dad hug me. I awoke the morning after, feeling bitter when I realized that it had just been a dream, and in reality, my exams weren't for another month. I should add at this point that I had almost entirely forgotten about my last dream, and I had never really given enough thought to make a link between that dream and what followed. This dream was different. The surprise I felt two and a half months later on results day, as I opened that envelope and saw a list of A's, intersected with the occasional B and 1C. My first thought as my dad hugged me was that there's no way that it could be a coincidence. But then again, if it wasn't a coincidence, then that meant that I must be a prophet or something, which I mean, come on, like, that was the case. I just pushed it to the back of my mind and spent the rest of the day celebrating with my friends. My life carried on as normal for the longest time. I went on to study law at university eventually. I ended up dropping out after a year, unable to cope with the pressure. I would occasionally dream, but still, nothing I really remembered and never any nightmares. By 20, I was in a happy relationship with a girl named Lucy. She was a student and we got a small house together. I had a job as a builder working for the most prestigious company in the area. Life was good. And then it all went wrong. I had a nightmare. Not like the ones that I used to have. I didn't wake up screaming and soaked. All I could remember was seeing myself holding a knife covered in blood. And when I looked down, there was Lucy, gasping for air that would never reach her lungs as blood poured from the large gash in her throat. Suffice to say, I was scared, but so what? It was a nightmare. My first for 13 years granted, but still, it didn't mean anything. I forced it from my mind in life and I carried on as normal. Three months later, I had just got back from work, exhausted. We had started working on a new shopping center in the city outskirts, and despite spending hours pouring the cement foundation, we were less than halfway done. Still, Tuesday night was pizza night, and I was hungry so I went inside and greeted Lucy all of it, the same as always. However, as I went to order the pizza, 
my phone ran out of battery halfway through. I cursed and called through to the kitchen where Lucy was putting away the day shopping, asking to use her phone and she said that it was fine. However, as I unlocked it, something caught my eye just before I had opened the app. Lucy and I had been together for a while now and we were happy, I thought. So why would she have a Tinder? I know that I shouldn't have opened it, but I did. I shouldn't have scrolled through it, but I did. So, suffice to say, when I bursted into the kitchen holding her phone, I wasn't happy. The argument lasted a long time, as you would expect. I don't know how, but she was twisting it to seem like I was in the wrong, as if she had the right. I don't remember grabbing the knife from the holder. My mind was full of rage. But I do remember the look of fear in her eyes before I swung it. I remember looking at the bloody knife in my hand, and then down at her, trying to breathe despite the red smile across her neck. She was dead two minutes later. Twenty minutes later, it hit me. I had just killed someone. I was going to go to prison for the rest of my life. No, no, she had it coming. She pushed me towards it, I thought. Yeah, right, stand there and say that to a judge, and they'll let you off scot-free, you idiot. I was on my own here, but I wasn't about to let my life go down the toilet. I thought for a while then that I had an idea. I grabbed the old rug out of the garage and laid it down on the floor next to her. I then grabbed her body and lifted it up onto one end before rolling her up among the fabric. I stood up and examined my hands, now sticky with the liquid that once gave her life. I shook that thought from my head and began to drag the rug towards the garage, opening the car door when I got there and placing her across the back seat. I opened the garage door and climbed into the driver's seat of my Fiesta. I knew where I was going, and it was brilliant. An hour later, I was at the construction site, dragging her body towards the unpoured foundation sections, and then I grabbed a shovel. Two hours later, I had sweat patches the size of dinner plates under my elbows, and she was beneath a one meter thick layer of dirt that would be covered by a thicker layer of concrete 24 hours later. I barely slept that night, cleaning my kitchen, my car, and the path throughout my house between them took me a very long time, and I had to be thorough. The next morning, after the smell of cleaning chemicals had subsided, I called the police to report a missing persons. I obviously didn't go to work that day. I was talking to a police officer for the first part of the day. And after that, I claimed I was too upset to go to work, which was in fact true. Yes, I had killed Lucy, but I also loved her. I lay there thinking of my colleagues as they would currently be pouring wet concrete over Lucy without the slightest realization when it hit me like a brick. The dream. I had seen her body on the floor, the knife in my hand. All of it before that night. And it had been exactly the same. 
every detail. This is when I began to think properly. How could I have dreamt this and my exam results before and both of them came to pass? Sure, the exams could be a coincidence, but no, not Lucy. That wasn't possible. And then I made the connection. That dream when I was 10. My mom dying. I saw him. I saw dad in the graveyard that day, during the funeral. By now, I was panicking. I thought I was going insane. Something was seriously wrong. And what could I do? I couldn't tell anyone. I would be confessing to a murder if I did. And then I heard it. A small voice trying to push through the flood of confusion and anxiety. You have a gift. It was then that I began to wonder. Maybe this was all a big messed up coincidence. Maybe not. I couldn't control it. But if I really could see the future in my dreams, I would at least own it. After all, it was that or prison. An easy choice in my eyes. I carried on living my life. Of course, there is a whole missing persons case built around Lucy. I saw a suspect, obviously, but they couldn't find any evidence tying it to me. They never found the body, obviously, that sat under meters of concrete. There's no chance of anyone finding it. Life was hard, but I adapted. It's now been just over a year since Lucy. I haven't had a dream since. Until last night. I was stood in the middle of the street, the same one that I live on. I could see a poster for the by-election next month hanging from the lamppost, but that was about as far as these similarities went. The sky was a burnt, angry-looking orange. There were no birds, no planes, nothing. I was surrounded by total silence. The houses themselves were either burnt out or in piles of rubble, completely destroyed. There was a pushchair just ahead of me, blackened and burnt. The body lying behind it was curled up, hands appearing to cover its eyes. I say because the skin was so badly blistered and blackened, it was impossible to work out the gender. It was the same story for those strewn up along the road. I didn't have the stomach to look at the contents of the pushchair. What did catch my attention gave me an answer, sort of. The paper lying abandoned in the road. The headline telling the abandoned street that a war had started. That was what I was left with in the morning when I woke up. And I know what it means. What I saw last night terrifies me, and I know that it's coming for all of us. I have a gift, and I'm using this gift to warn everyone else. Will this be taken seriously? It's unlikely. Can it be avoided? I hope so. I'm sharing this in the hope that it can, before we're destroyed. I won't know in sharing this, I'm sharing my confession. I will have taken my own life before the police traced this back to me. Before the events I saw unfurl. 
And I honestly hope that this is taken seriously. And the human race can fix itself before it's destroyed. He said that I have a gift. But he was wrong. It's a curse. The Texas Experiment Written by Carlos Roca When you hear of Texas, you might be inclined to think of rural countrysides and cowboys. And outside of a couple large cities, you'd be right. I'm here to tell you a story that happened in one of those remote areas that I'll never go back to. Wait, I should first tell you who I am and how this all began. My name is Aaron. I'm a geneticist and I'm from California. And spent most of my time studying there. This all started when I was around 25. I was getting to the point where people were starting to recognize me and my work in the lab. I then got a phone call. Hello, Aaron. Would you mind having a meeting tomorrow? Yeah, what time do you want me to be there? 5 p.m. sharp. I was excited. I thought that I was about to get a big opportunity related to my work. Was I right? Well, technically, yes, but at what cost? Hello, Aaron. It's a pleasure to meet you. Please sit down. We have seen your work gradually get better over the years, and we wanted to call you in for an experiment. What type of experiment is this? Before I tell you anything, sign this NDA, please. Basically, we have an experiment facility in the outskirts of San Antonio, Texas. And we want you to go there and experiment on people. Again, I'll ask what type of experiment is this. We will want you to inject certain substances into the test patients. Will this be safe? It is uncertain. This will be our first trial. That's why I ask that you oversee the NDA to understand that this is not public whatsoever. I apologize, but I think I'll pass, sir. Thank you for the opportunity, though. The man now hands me a sticky note with the number 2 million. I, of course, didn't question anything else after that point. I took my cash and signed all the contracts. The saying that everything has a price is sadly true, and I got prepared to head to Texas in two weeks. Three days later, I was flown from San Diego to a small airport in the middle of nowhere. When I arrived, there was a man in an older pickup, waiting outside as I stepped off of the plane. Miss Aaron, I presume. Right this way, please. As we drove, I looked out of the windows and attempted small talk, but this man was very short in his responses. After about a two-hour ride, we pulled onto what looked like a ranch or a farm. Again, I'm from the big city, so I'm not sure what you would call it, but anyways... We drove about another 15 minutes and he pulled over and hopped out. He pulled a keycard off his neck and he pushed it against a large tree. I was very confused but then I felt a strong vibration slowly going from my feet to my chest. The ground opened up in front of us and it looked like a ramp going underground. He got back into the truck and drove down it saying, Welcome to the San Antonio Research Facility. 
I was amazed at the size of this complex headed under a field in the middle of nowhere. And as we pulled up to a stop, I was in awe. The man now escorted me to a room. And then another man comes out of one of the rooms to greet me. Hello, Aaron. I've heard great things about you. Thank you very much. Where do we get started? I want you to go have a meeting real quick with the people in the room ahead of us. I then walk in to see that I wasn't the only scientist there. Eight other scientists and doctors were here as well. Two of them were geneticists like me. Three other ones were neurologists and two of them were regular doctors. We all greeted each other and got to know one another. After a good 30 minutes of talking, the same man that led me into this room now pulls a file on the table and asks us to oversee it. The file explains the goal of the project and each of our roles. The goal of the project is to inject a modified version of LSD into the patients to see what will happen. My role was to check the patient's genetics after the project. The neurologist's role was to monitor the brain and the doctors were there to just inject the substance and make sure the patients were unharmed. We all then got our equipment ready and waited for commands to head to the room where we would see the experiment. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Please follow. We were then led to a room with a glass window separating all of us and the patients. The patients are now called in, and this sight still haunts me and fills me with anger to this day. Walking into the room, the patients were kids. What kind of messed up stuff was this? I turned to look at all of my associates with shocked faces as well. Do you ever see those posted pictures at Walmart saying missing kid? Well, guess what most of them are probably taken by the government for messed up experiments just like this one. The two doctors now walk into the room, injecting the three children with the substance. We then waited for a good 30 minutes until... We noticed changes in the way they spoke to each other. Instead of regular common-use English, they started to use a modified and more efficient version of it. Or at least, that's what we think it was. At the hour marker, we all started to see changes in the color of their eyes. All of them had had brown eyes, but now it seemed to be turning gray. This experiment was only going to last 13 hours, but at the rate it already reached... I was haunted of what other things might lie dormant. Hour 2. The neurologist concluded that the substance is causing a resetting of the brain. But now, one of the children muttered the word, save. We all were left in puzzlement of what that was supposed to mean. Hour 3. One of the children, Cindy, starts portraying strange behavior. She starts off by staring at her hands and moving them in unnatural ways. At this point, I was really starting to question what type of modification was taking place in the LSD. And during my teen years, I had tried it and what was being displayed with these children was not even close to what happens. Safe, Cindy said. Cindy, is everything alright in there? One of the doctors said, speaking through the speaker. She goes on to repeat this word for a straight 30 minutes until she decided to scream it out loud eventually, losing the ability to speak. The doctors at this point had enough and attempted to open the door up and grab the children. But as soon as they had tried, 
many guards came in and grabbed both of them. Something was strange, though. Cindy was the only child showing odd behavior. Rick and Gabriel just stayed there almost completely fixated on the wall. I assumed they were amazed of what was appearing on the wall. Because, from experience, anything on LSD can look unnaturally intriguing. But this was something modified, so I had no clue what to think of. All I could do was just assume from my past experience. Hour 5 Gabriel suddenly gets up and speaks to Rick with their new version of English. After the sentence was muttered out of Gabriel's mouth, him and Rick pick up Cindy and completely beat her up. At this point, all of us had enough of this and we all wanted out. But the man reminded us that if we break certain contract, things could happen to us. And if they were crazy enough to do stuff like this, they would certainly get rid of us. So, through fear, we continued. After a good five minutes of them beating up Cindy, they both in sync said, Save. At this point, I had to come down to two conclusions. Either this drug had caused them to believe in a structured religion that they had created, or they had just right out lost their minds. Well, you could say that they're the same thing, but I hope you understand that this wasn't easy to decipher. June, what do you see on their brain scans? Basically the same thing from hour two. What seems to be a brain resetting? Hour six and they're speaking in a language that hardly sounds English. After a good 30 minutes, both of the boys pick up Cindy's beaten up body and now start to attempt to open her skull. At this moment, everyone in the room had to find something to vomit into. After a short period, they were successful in grabbing her brain out. Both of them now seemed to be studying every aspect of the brain. Maybe they were able to see things that we couldn't. After 10 minutes, they looked at each other and nodded in agreement. They both started breaking bits and pieces of her brain apart, and they now both took a handful of the brain parts and ate them. Now, this wasn't making them the typical zombie, but it was certainly giving them a cannibalistic trait. A brief moment later, one of the neurologists yells out, Everyone, come check this out. The brain scans showing an abnormality accruing in the brain. After they had ingested those brain parts, there is a spike of neuron chemistry in the brain. So, you're basically saying through eating Cindy's brain, they were able to gain more neurons. I'm not saying that's exactly what happened. Hour 7. The boys continue to speak to each other in the unknown language. Rick now walks up to the window. Even though he couldn't see us, he knew that we could see him. He then gives us this eerie grin with his gray eyes, staring deep into all of our souls and then he says, Save. Gabriel now seems to be in pain. He yells out in excruciating agony. But from what the neurologist said, there seemed not to be any sort of physical pain produced from this substance. So if anything, Gabriel was yelling in a mental frustration of some sort. Hour 8 Gabriel and Rick sit in front of each other and stare at each other with complete concentration. They both, after a while, started to laugh. But this laugh wasn't anything natural. It was completely not human in any way. I assume that whatever this stuff was, it gave them the ability to use a telepathy. 
So, one main thing all of us understood was that the main thing this substance caused was language adaptations. Hour 9. Gabriel gets up and starts to get frustrated. Rick tries to help him, but Gabriel outraged and started to attack Rick. Both of them fought for at least 30 minutes straight, before exhausting to the point where they couldn't physically get up. Towards the end of the hour, they had gained somewhat of a mutual acceptance that something else was more important. Or at least, that's what it seemed like. Hour 10. Out of the blue, Rick starts to speak regular English. Can you please send in a doctor? I don't feel so well. We all knew better to even send a fly into that room. It was clearly a trap that we weren't going to play into. After we had refused, Rick dips his fingers into Cindy's blood and writes safe on the wall. While all of this was happening, Gabriel never took his eyes off the window that he knew we were behind. Hour 11. Gabriel stands up and gets Cindy's body and slams it into the window. He continues this for 30 minutes. All of us turned the other way and covered our ears. We all likely were saying to ourselves, what have we gotten ourselves into? Rick then laughs loudly in an unnatural way until he broke his vocal cords like Cindy had at first when she continually screamed, save. After Gabriel had grown tired, he started to look at Rick with desperation. Hour 12. Rick started to touch the wall in a very peculiar way. He kept on muttering, safe, as he would touch the walls. Gabriel then creeps up behind Rick and chokes him, with every ounce of strength he had with bloodlust like I've never seen before. He then proceeded to crack his skull open and eat certain parts of the brain. Like before, he again gained more neurons in his brain. Hour 13. Gabriel has never once kept his eyes away from the window. He gave us this stare as if he wanted us to experience the worst pain imaginable. The man who seemed to be in charge of this experiment then walks in. He goes up to the speaker and says, Gabriel, why have you done all of this? After a brief pause of him trying to remember the ancient language English he had once used, he responded, Because I'm safe now. And I lust with every cell in my body to make all of you behind that window safe. The man now makes a command into his phone and shortly after, guards open up the door and shoot the boy with darts. This is where I came in, and I was forced to examine the body after. What I found out was shocking. Once the substance was injected, it sent a code to all of his genes to redirect a certain way. It's still unknown. The neurologist noticed that this substance completely changed his perception of reality. That's likely what caused him to act so inhumane. After we had turned all of our reports in, we were told to head back to the room that we all had first met in. There, all of us looked at each other in complete shock of the events that had just transpired. I was the first to speak up. What did we sign up for? I just can't believe they convinced us to do something this horrible, one of these scientists said. The other scientists couldn't even mutter a word. They were completely horrified. The man now walks into the room. Thank you all for your work. You will be shortly escorted out of this facility. But just remember this. Everything that happened here today will never be spoken of. 
And well, let's just say that we have tabs on y'all. After a couple of hours, they finally escorted me into a hotel nearby. That night, I couldn't sleep at all. Matter of fact, to this day, I can barely sleep or socialize with other people. The two million wasn't worth it at all. I was now a rich man with a messed up mind. There is no point. What really messes me up is that these were children. No older than 12 years old and that they do endure such a horrible experiment. And I played a hand in this. Even if I wasn't aware of the magnitude, I still had a part in it. I write to you all here to finally let go of this burden that's been weighing me down for the past two years, hoping that this may help. Just know this, in the shadows lie nothing but pure evil. There is certainly messed up people out there that will do anything imaginable. Be safe and just know next time you pass by a farm, it might just be a government facility that houses down-to-the-bone evil experiments. I took a job as a farmhand. I think there's something in the woods. Written by Archie Sunshine It always confused me how people want to run away to the countryside. It seems so romantic to city people. The idea of rolling fields or forests becoming one with nature, whatever that means. That's not completely true, I mean. I've been confused about it since I started working out here. I decided to take a gap here, you know, get out of the city. I thought it would be good for me, I guess. My parents had suggested it, since they know my aunt has friends, Jim and Luane, who live out in the country on a sheep farm. And I thought, what could be better than that? Well, a lot of things, actually. Being a farmhand kind of blows. Call me a city slicker all you want, but there's just something unappealing about shoveling crap out of a barn. And the sheep are cute at least, so it could be worse. So, here I am, I guess. The farmhouse is nice enough, if a little dusty and spider-ridden. My aunt's friends are good folks when they aren't trying to set me up with her daughter, Prudence. And the pay is pretty decent if I can stomach the crap smell. James is a good teacher and I'm a good learner, so he got me up to snuff on my duties quickly. Feeding the sheep, mucking out the barn, and hanging around the pasture to make sure none of them get eaten. James and Luane and their son, Dashiell, handle shearing the sheep. It's the spring thaw, so they're happy to have extra hands around to help since... Jim's shoulder has been bugging him, and it's good to feel needed. I spend a lot of time outside in the pasture with these sheep and their dog, Ace. I'm not always alone. Sometimes, Dash comes around to chat and share coffee. I'm glad that he comes around. I feel safer when he's there, since he actually knows what he's doing. It's easy to feel how alone you are when you're in the pasture, especially since it's wet season and there's a fog in the air near constantly. When I'm on the far end of the pasture, I can hardly see the house off in the distance. I found it pretty peaceful the first few days, sipping coffee and watching these sheep graze without a care in the world. 
On the sixth day, Dashiell comes up to me with a job. He's carrying a box of tools under his arm, wearing his line jacket and that big crooked tooth smile on his face. Mad Jack, Dad said there's an old wall in the woods, he says. Yeah, what about it? I asked. He said that he wants me to go uncover it for him so he can take a look at it. He doesn't want to head out to do it on his own because of his shoulder, so he wants me to get it ready for him. He pauses for a moment, rubbing his nose. You want to come? It's a decent break from standing around in the fields. Dash is good for conversation, and the woods are just beginning to come alive after the thaw. It's pretty beautiful this time of year, and the air is cool but not freezing. The birds are chirping in the trees. It feels like a real breath of fresh air. And we find the clearing pretty quickly. There's a big stone wall in the middle of it, boarded up by decaying planks of wood. Moss clings to the stone and wood in patches, while the grass is dead all around it. The bird song sounds further away here, off in the distance. An uneasy feeling settles over me. I look up at Dash, but it doesn't seem like he cares, since he just walks up to the well. He wraps his knuckles on the wood. It looks drenched and rotting, since it's been raining the past few nights. Doesn't look too hard to open up, he muses, setting his toolbox down and rummaging through it. My hair is standing up on end for some reason. It feels like I'm being watched almost. I shuffle closer to Dash and keep an eye on the tree line. He pulls out a claw hammer. It looks comically small for his massive workman hands. He starts with the nearest board to him and he pries it off easily. The rotting wood splitting around the nails holding it down onto the stone. The other boards come off just as easy. Dash peers down the well. I join him. I almost get a feeling of vertigo at how deep the well is. A shiver runs down my spine, a feeling of cold dread settling in my gut. I glance at Dash again, and again it doesn't seem like he notices anything wrong. Welp, that sure is a well, he says blandly, laughing at his own joke. I try to laugh along, but it's weak at best. Ah, uh, yeah, it is. Should we go back and get Jim? I ask, taking a few steps back from the well. He nods his agreement as he packs up his toolbox again, and I immediately feel relieved. The whole walk home, I feel like something is watching us, but I don't say anything. The rest of the day goes over as normal, watching the sheep, mucking out the barn, feeding the sheep watering the sheep. The whole time, I can feel something watching me from the woods. Every time the woods are in sight, it's like I can see something just out of the corner of my vision. But there's nothing there. There's nothing there. I feel safer when I'm in the house. As the day moves into night and we have our dinner, I almost completely forget about it. And I retire to my room. They've converted the attic into a guest room. It gets a little bit cold at night and I don't have a ton of space. 
but the bed is warm and soft and I sink into sleep easily. It's early in the wee hours of the morning when I hear it. A long note from far away. A low, human-like whistle. It's not birdsong or an instrument. It's someone out there. Something out there whistling. I rub my eyes and sit up. Looking across the room out the circular attic window that faces the pasture and the woods beyond it. The sheep are all in the barn tonight. So there's only one thing out in the field. It's difficult to make out. It's too dark. Only the moon illuminates it. It's dark black, whatever it is. Standing up on its hind legs like a person. The only thing about it I can fully make out are its two golden yellow eyes. Like glowing pool balls in its head. Turned to face my window. I feel that vertigo again. Like I'm going to fall over. And it lets out another long, piercing whistle. I draw the curtains shut tight and crawl back into bed, pretending like I never saw it there, even as it continues to whistle. When I wake up again, it's to the jarring sound of Luann's shrieking outside. I'm shocked awake, rushing out of the room in my pajamas. I fear the worst after last night, even if it was only a dream. When I open the front door... Everyone is standing out in front of the porch. Luann has her hands over her mouth. There is a vomit on the ground in front of Dash, who loons heavily against the porch railing. I walk down the steps almost on autopilot, blood going cold, and eyes as big as dinner plates when I look out into the field. It's like a sick art piece in the pasture. There is a tall Y-shaped branch stuck into the ground, about the height of a stop sign. The ends of the branch are sharpened to points so that whatever monster made this could stab its prey onto it. There are five robins on each half of the Y, stabbed on through their skulls and bellies and wings, mangled and bloody. Around the base of the branch, there are more dead birds, their stomachs split open and guts on display for all to see. They litter the field in a ring around the branch. I feel sick. I can't move a muscle. My hands are shaking and I feel like I'm going to pass out. It's only when I notice James storming up the stairs of the porch past me, swearing like a sailor, that I snap out of it. I bet it's those dang kids that just moved in down the way. I'm gonna show them a piece of my mind. I'll tell you that much. He snarls slamming the door open and thumping up the stairs. Luann and Prudence rush after him, hoping to calm his nerves, but I stay. Dash isn't doing well. I wince when he throws up a second time, letting him breathe. I'll, I'll clean it up, okay? I say gently, even though the thought of it makes me want to join him in throwing up. He looks up at me with a weary look on his face. Yeah? He mumbles. I wanted to say no. Yeah, of course, man. Come on, let's go inside. I say, mustering a weak smile. It takes a long time to clean it all up on my own. I managed to keep last night's dinner in my stomach at least, so that's good. 
The garbage bag is heavy when I toss it into the trash bin, and my gloves are soaked in bird blood. There's a sink on the side of the barn. I tug my gloves off and I start to wash my hands. The blood had soaked through and stained my skin with her blood. So I scrub and scrub, lathering up with the yellowing bar of soap, nearly stuck to the dish that balances on the basin. The blood running off my hands seems endless, swirling down the drain with the water. The stream stops, the pipes groaning weakly. My hands pull back instinctively. The tab quivers for a moment before a clot of wet mud and leaves and feathers splatters against the basin of the sink. Red and water trickles out of the tab after it in droplets. I hear it whistle out from the tree line. I don't want to look. I really don't want to look. The farmhouse feels like it's miles away. When I turn and rush back towards it, closing the door behind me with a resounding thud. I shouldn't have come here. The day after is tense at best. James is still angry about the vandalism. He really believes that the kids on the way did this. I don't speak up about what I think it is. I doubt they would ever believe me. But when James snaps about the kids throughout the day... I notice that Dashiell is quick to say that it wasn't them. I want to hope that maybe he saw it too. I tried to convertly ask Jim about the well. Luann made us lunch despite what had happened that morning, but our sandwiches grew cold on their plates. None of us had much of an appetite. I clear my throat. So, Jim, have you been planning on opening up the well for a while? I ask sheepishly. He looks at me, and there's a confused look on his face. Yeah, I only came across the thing recently. It's not too far off the property, so I don't know why I hadn't noticed it. We moved to this farm just about five years ago, so we should have found it sooner, yeah? I nod quietly. Yeah. Any reason you asked? He narrows his eyes at me. I changed the subject quickly, and the conversation moved on. Despite how on edge we all felt, we still had to work. There are bloodstains in the grass where the birds once were, and the sheep all avoid the place where the sculpture once was. I try not to think about it. I notice that Dash spends more time out in the field with me. I understand why. His job was supposed to be repairing the fence near the back of the pasture, near the woods. We're sharing coffee by the fence when he turns to me. Do you think it was really kids? He asked quietly. I looked down at my cup of coffee, licks of steam floating off it in the cold air. I don't. Me neither. I swallow thickly and take a sip of the coffee. I don't want to look at him. Did you hear it last night? The whistling? Yeah, I heard it, he says. I breathe a sigh of relief. I go to say something, to ask if he saw it too. But we're interrupted by the sound of Ace snarling at something. When I look at him, he's got his fur standing up on end, teeth bared and drool dripping from his lips. He starts barking. 
I follow his gaze into the tree line. Those yellow eyes peer back at the three of us, glowing like Christmas lights. My ears ring as Ace continues to bark and snarl. I'm frozen where I stand. No matter how much I try, I can't force myself to move. I'm roused from my trance when I hear one of these sheep scream. Dash and I run towards the sound. The flock has already gathered around the poor thing. Laying in the middle of them, one of the sheep lays convulsing. Dash crouches down next to it, holding its head as it begins to cough and hack. We're silent with confusion and fear when it finally gets what was in its throat. A bloody clot of sticks and mud and leaves and feathers hit the ground with a splat, droplets staining our pants and boots. The sheep goes still, eyes glazed over like cue balls. We don't have much time to mourn the poor thing. We explained to Jim and the Wayne that it died of a seizure, which I suppose is true in some part. They both seem upset, as does Prudence and Dash, but they don't take the time to mourn. It seems like they were all too exhausted to do that. We heard the sheep back into the barn. I'm closing up the barn doors when Dash comes up to me. Jack, do you think that we let something out? He asked. Out of the well? I asked him. My throat feels dry. Yeah. What do we do? I look at him like he has two heads, putting the latch down on the barn door. What, what do you think I would know? I don't know. I guess you're just smarter than I am. He mutters and not making eye contact with me. I mean, I think you are, I don't know. Jack, I just think you would have a better shot at the me if we're just going by horror troves. He laughs weakly. I laugh along with him, but it comes out dry and tired. There's a long moment of silence between us. I tentatively glance out to the tree line behind him. I don't see anything, so that's lucky I guess. I think that we have to cover the well back up. We'll go there tomorrow evening after dinner, nail some planks back on it, and it'll all be over. Dash looks relieved when I say that, even though deep down, I get a sinking feeling in my gut. I can feel its eyes on me again. So I turn away from the woods and I gesture for Dash to follow me back to the house. It's late at night again when I hear it again. The whistling is closer now. I don't want to look out the window. I really don't want to look, but there's some part of me that forces my legs to move. I peek out the window in there, out in the yard. There it is. It's like a wolf standing on two legs, teeth yellowed and saliva dripping from its lips. It whistles again, and with it, I can hear its heart beating probably below the black cape that it wears around its body. I don't want to look at it, but I can't stop myself from staring. Staring down at its huge, bulbous, golden eyes. Staring back at me. I stare at it until my legs buckle. And I hit the floor with a thump, passing out into a cold, dreamless sleep. No matter what weird trance that thing put me in that night... Hearing Jim cussing like a madman is enough to wake me up. When I do, there is blood staining the sheets, 
My hands are wet with blood. My legs feel like they're a hundred pounds each. I'm shaking when I walk down to the bathroom. The sink turns on with a squeak from the old metal taps. The stream of water washing away the mess. I don't know where it came from. I don't know how it got there and it makes me want to scream. It feels like I ran a marathon last night. My hands ache and my arms feel as heavy as my legs do. I look up at my reflection in the mirror. My eyes are red and bloodshot. Dark bags under them make me look five years older than I am. No matter how much I scrub my hands, the stain is still there, dried with my skin. I keep scrubbing, soap and water and blood swirling down the drain. Mentally, I'm begging it to get off of me. I squeeze my eyes shut and try not to scream, hoping that when I open them, it'll be gone. I open my eyes. Behind me in the mirror, I can see two glowing golden eyes through the sheer shower curtain. Blood dribbles down my upper lip from my nose. My throat goes dry. The water feels cold. I feel cold. I grab a tissue to stop the bleeding, holding it up to my nose and turning the taps off. I rush down the stairs, slamming the bathroom door behind me. When I make it to the main floor, I stop in my tracks. After what I saw in the bathroom, I had almost forgotten what woke me up in the first place. The front door is open. I want to throw up. There's a rabbit nailed to the front door by a spike through its body. Its blood has long since dried, but the smell of death lingers in the air, not helped by the line of four other dead rabbits each split open on a different step on the porch. I know that Jim is yelling, and I can hear him storm past me to get his gun, but I can't make out what he's saying. My ears are ringing too loudly. I feel sick, my heart rate speeding up and my head feeling woozy as I stare into the blank, milky eyes of that rabbit. Something doesn't want me here. Something hates me so. So much that it would do something like this just to send a message. Something hates me so much that it made me do that. The ringing in my ears only grows louder. I squeeze my eyes shut and I can see it. Last night, moonlight above the pasture. I moved on my own. Even though I didn't want to, it wouldn't let me go. It left the rabbits for me. It left these spikes that held the wood over its well in place. I was asleep, but my eyes were open. I thought it was a dream. I thought it was just a nightmare. I opened my eyes again, heart thumping in my chest and bile rising in my throat. Nobody is looking at me. Nobody knows what I've done. I look around the room. I look at Dash. I can't force a single word out of my throat, but he looks back at me and nods. He walks away and I'm left in the room alone. We understand what we have to do without saying anything to one another. I wish that I could be as brave as him. I wish that I had never looked out my window last night. It has to end tonight. We don't bother with breakfast or lunch that day. We've all lost our appetites. It's right out to the field with me. 
Dash is tasked with fixing a broken part of the barn. I'm glad for it. It means that he can survey what we have to cover up the well. The only issue is that it leaves me alone in the field. I wish that he were here to stand with me. Even just having him around makes me feel less afraid. But he's not here. I can see Jim over at the house, scrubbing at the front door to get the bloodstain out. Guilt roils in my stomach and it makes my hands feel sweaty. There wasn't anything I could have done, but still, I feel like crap. At least it'll all be over soon. It's not long now. I'm broken on my thoughts when I hear a low whistle from the woods. I whip my head around. Looking out to the tree line before her, I hear a loud shout from the barn. Dash. I don't even realize that I'm running until I'm almost at the barn door. Rushing inside while I hear the sound of Jim coming towards the scene as well. They keep the building supplies up in the loft. My heart drops when I see Dash on the ground. I'm frozen in place, eyes wide and hands shaking. No, he can't. He can't be. I'm unstuck when I hear him groan in pain. I'm at his side on my knees in a moment, but not sure what to do. His left arm is bent at an odd angle. A pool of blood leaking from the back of his head. My hands fumble in the air above him, as if there's something that I can do. I can't stop shaking. Sweat beads on the back of my neck. Tears filling my eyes and making it hard to see when Jim rushes in. I hear him swear. I hear Dash respond weakly from the ground, but nothing registers. All I can hear is my heart pounding out of my chest. In my head... I can hear a whistle piercing like the sound of a gunshot. There's nothing that I can do. There's nothing I can... Jack, what the hell are you sitting around for? Jim's shout snaps me out of my stupor. I hear him on the phone calling an ambulance and I look down at Dash. He looks back at me, blurry-eyed, and clearly in pain and he murmurs to me, Can you do it on your own? It's getting dark out. I'm at the farm by myself. Everyone else is at the hospital with Dash. The sheep are all on the barn, and the pasture is quiet. The rusty wagon I drag behind me squeaks rhythmically, weighed down by the 2x4s and tools inside of it. My headlamp lights the way, and Jim's shotgun is heavy in my free hand. It feels like a funeral march. There's no sound in the air. Not an owl call or cricket, just the squeak of my wagon and the sound of my footsteps. It doesn't take long to find the well. The sky is red and the sun is dipping below the horizon and spilling its light through the trees like wine. I come to a halt next to the well. It's as deep as it ever was, seeming to go on forever without an end in sight fading to an inky blackness that makes my stomach turn. I don't dwell on it, picking up the power drill and getting to work. I'm anxious of the setting sun, trying to get the job done as quickly as possible, drilling holes for the spikes to go into. I'm losing sunlight fast, but the fear of whatever the heck came out of the well lights a fire under my butt. The nails sink through the wood with a thunk each time, 
making me feel less and less scared with each board. I'm fitting the final board into place, ready to drive in the final spike. When a whistle cuts through the air, I whirl around, eyes darting about. I glance up at the sky, seeing these stars staring back at me. I hardly notice the sun fading away. I fumble for the shotgun, and I hear the whistle again, a long, low tone right behind me. I don't want to look. I don't want to look. My hands are shaking. I've never fired a gun before in my life. I'm going to die. I turn, letting my eyes stay open just enough to make sure that it's behind me. It's there, standing across the clearing for me. Heads taller than me, eyes glowing like headlights. I squeeze the trigger of the shotgun. The bang rings out through the woods, echoing through the silent trees. It hardly flinches, while the recoil throws me back against the well. Rather, it rushes at me, charging. It opens its maw, all yellowing teeth and a wet, slithering tongue. A gaping throat that's as inky black as the bottom of the well. I dive out of the way, and it snarls like a thousand angry dogs. I scramble away from it and it gives chase, shambling towards me on all fours. Its cape falls open and I can see its ribcage exposed below, skeletal, and in the center is a pumping, rotting heart. I stumble around, turning to it when it skids and runs into a tree. I pump the shotgun and the shell falls to the ground. I raise it up, aiming for its heart, and I shoot again. This time, it screams in pain, jaw hanging wide open, and eyes going even brighter. I let out a delirious laugh at my own luck, only for the thing to charge again. I go to run, but I've backed myself against a tree. Its massive clawed hand wraps around my torso and lifts me up like I weigh as much as a baseball bat. I kick and yell, struggling in its grasp. It drools without hunger without even meaning to, clearly because it doesn't lift me up to eat me. It grins broadly, and it makes eye contact with me. I want to look away. I can't. I stare back at it, into those light bulb eyes that make spots appear in my vision. It whistles, and blood drips from my nose. The whistle echoes in my ears and it turns into voices all saying different things, laughing, talking, crying, weeping, screaming, all echoing in my brain and making my head hurt. I can't make out the words, but I know what they're saying. I know what they're saying. You never should have come here. You never should have opened the well. You never should have asked Dash for help. All of this is your fault. None of this would have happened if you had never come here. I can't move. I'm frozen in its grip. Blood leaking from my nose and hands quivering. I want to throw up. I want to scream. I want to call for help, but I can't. It opens its mouth, lifting me closer. I surrender myself to it. I think about my parents. I'm never coming home to them.
I think about my friends. I'll never hear their voices again. I think about Dash and his family. I'll never be able to apologize for what I've caused. I think about Dash. I feel its breath in my face. And I feel my arm move. I muster all my strength. And I bring the shotgun up. Jabbing the butt of it into its eye. It roars, curling in on itself. In its rage, it throws me across the clearing like a misbehaving toy. I feel my leg collide with the well. A sickening crunch, sending searing pain up my leg. I scream in pain, panting for breath. My vision goes white for a moment, but I shake my head even as tears prick at my eyes. The well. I'm next to the well. I drag myself closer to the well, huffing and panting and gritting my teeth. I hear it, begin to run backwards towards me as I lift the hammer up, and I bring it down with a loud, final thunk. The monster roars out, screaming through the trees. I squeeze my eyes shut, and even as I do, I still see the blinding light that flashes as it disappears. And I wait. For a minute, that feels like years. And I hear crickets in the woods. Exhaustion finally seeps into me, the pain of my injury hitting me with full force. I let my eyes slide shut, and I hear the sound of birds and bugs as I slowly drift into blackness. When I wake up, I hear the sound of a heart rate monitor, the sound of gurneys being pushed around and distant chatter. No whistling. I breathe a sigh of relief. My legs feel like hell. I sit up in bed, looking around the room. It's a hospital, obviously. The family must have found me. My assumption is confirmed when I look over and the curtain is drawn back to another one of the beds. Dash is sitting in it, looking over at me. He's got a caster on his arm and a bandage around his head. He's beaming at me. What? I ask, my throat hoarse. I can't keep the smile off my face. His grin is infectious. I'm glad you know you didn't die, he responds. It makes me laugh a little. I'm glad I didn't die too. Did you tell them to look for me? I asked. He nods. You did it right. I think so. He sighs, clearly relieved, leaning his head back into his pillow. Whatever tension was there melts out of him. We should be resting, he mumbles. I can finally sleep. Yeah, we should, I agree. I'm not much for conversation. Not right now. It's only a few minutes before Dash is snoring across from me. I close my eyes trying to drift into sleep. And then I hear that whistling in my head. I took a job as a janitor. I had to follow a very strange set of rules. Written by Narciso. My name is Yuri, I'm 27 years old, and I have a daughter named Alexa. My wife passed away a few months ago, 
and I've been trying to find a steady job, but it's been difficult. I mostly do occasional odd jobs to support my daughter, but lately, I haven't been able to find anything. I was on a forum for people who needed help with various things, and I saw something that interested me. It was a post from someone saying that they had an open position for the night shift, and they were willing to pay $20 an hour. I know that it seemed too good to be true, and it did seem a little sketchy at first, but I needed the money desperately. The post had a link for an email address, so I clicked it and told them that if the position was still open, I was interested in applying. About 20 minutes later, I received an email from the person, and it read as follows. Hi, yes, the position for the night shift is still open. Thanks for applying. I was honestly worried that people would think that my post was a scam, but I can assure you that it's not. I need someone who can follow instructions and not ask too many questions. If you're still interested, meet me at this address on Monday at 5pm, and we can have an interview. I admit, something felt off about all of this and I should have just left it, but for some reason I felt like the person was being sincere with what they said. Monday arrived and it was almost time for the interview. I had hired a babysitter to watch Alexa for the night, and then I got in my crappy car and made my way to the address mentioned in the email. After about a half an hour, I finally arrived at the location. It was a bit far from the city. The building was six stories and didn't have many windows. There weren't any logos or signs beside the address on the building. The parking lot was massive and only had three cars. I parked as close to the building as I could, took a deep breath and got out and I walked to the door. It was an automatic door that would open when you would get close to it, but it didn't open when I was near it. I saw a secretary and I waved at her. She noticed me and opened the door for me. I walked towards her and she let out a smile. She was absolutely stunning. She had curly red hair and extremely light blue eyes. Her smile made me ease up a bit and I said, Hello, I'm here for the interview. She nodded and said, Oh yes, please take a seat and Mr. Jackson will be with you shortly. Her voice was extremely soothing. I sat down in a chair not too far from the door and I looked around the reception area. The walls were this depressing shade of gray and there were barely any decorations. Beside a few plants that looked like they were on the verge of dying from dehydration. There were also a couple of hallways but they were all pitch black and seemed to go on forever. There weren't any windows either so the only natural light was coming from the door. Actually, it was sort of dark in there. There were only a few lights and they weren't very bright. About five minutes passed and the secretary told me that he was ready to see me. She got up and led me to the interview room, which was luckily near the reception area. She opened the door, let out a sweet smile and closed the door. I walked up to Mr. Jackson and shook his hand. He was a pretty tall guy, maybe about 6'4 and he absolutely towered over me. He was also bald and had a short beard. He let out a smile and we both sat down. Welcome and I'm glad you were able to arrive, he said in a cheery tone. His voice was incredibly deep and soothing. 
I replied with, uh, Thank you. I'm glad that you are willing to see me. He nodded at me and said, So, tell me about yourself. He has a somewhat intense stare. Well, uh, my name is Yuri Sokolov. I was born in Moscow, but at the young age, my parents moved to the United States. I'm 27 years old, and I have a six-year-old daughter. I said in a somewhat nervous tone, due to how intensely he was staring at me. Well, that's quite interesting, Yuri. He started to notice that I was nervous and said, What are you so nervous about? I took a second to reply. I'm sorry, it's just how you're staring at me. It's making me a bit nervous. He looked at me for a few seconds. I noticed that he didn't blink the entire time that I was talking to him. Uh, I'm sorry. I sometimes do that. I'm sure you're wondering what exactly it is you'll be doing if you're hired. Well, you'll be our night shift janitor. He let out a chuckle and smiled. Oh, I see. Well, I don't have a problem with that. I said as I was starting to ease up. Well, I'm glad to hear that. You're the only person who's applied for the job, so I think it's safe to say that you're hired. He smiled and shook my hand. I smiled back and felt extremely relieved to hear that. We both sat back down and said, I'm really glad to hear that, but I had a question. He nodded. Mask away. I looked around the room and asked, what exactly is it that you guys do here? His smile went away and he had that intense stare again. I wouldn't ask you too many questions if I were you. I felt nervous again and I apologized to him. Me smiled again and said, Oh, no worries. Anyways, you'll be starting right away and we'll provide you with a uniform and a list of things that you'll be doing. Congratulations again. We both got up once again and he held the door open for me. I walked out and the secretary was waiting for me. Congratulations on getting the job. If you'll follow me, I'll show you where you'll be starting your shaft. Oh, and by the way, my name is Christine. She smiled and I smiled back at her. Hey, thanks. My name's Yuri. She giggled. That's a nice name. She led me down one of the dark hallways and opened a door to the employee room. Your outfit is in the third locker, and the instructions are on the table. If you need anything else, call the number mentioned on the instructions. Good night and good luck. She closed the door and walked away. The room was kind of dark, but it had a window. I looked out and saw that it was already nighttime. I looked at the clock and it said that it was 8pm. I can't believe that much time had already passed. I opened the locker and put on my uniform and then I took a look at the instructions. It read as follows. Welcome to the family. We're glad that you're working with us and we're looking forward to a long and successful career for you. Before getting to what you'll be doing, we have a few things to say. Firstly, we are not responsible for any physical, mental, or emotional trauma you may and will encounter. We are also not responsible for anything that happens after your shift is ended. Now then, it is extremely important that you follow the instructions to the letter, for your own safety and sanity. You are not the only janitor, but you are also the only thing that's keeping them at bay. Now then, here is what you will need to do. Step 1. 
lock the entrance and do not unlock or open the door until dawn. Then, at exactly 9pm, you will need to get to the restroom and clean the mirror. Do not, under any circumstances, clean it after or before 9pm. Make sure to lock the door. And then after you clean the mirror, you will need to unlock the second door in the main hallway and go inside and wait until 11pm. You may hear something knock and try to open the door. Make sure that you lock it and do not open it for any reason, no matter how much it screams or threatens you to open the door. Step 2. After 11pm, you will need to quickly make your way back to the kitchen. Turn on the first two lights and clean the floor and empty the fridge. If you hear growling or see two white eyes, do not acknowledge them and keep cleaning. She will leave you alone as long as you ignore her. Step 3. After you clean the kitchen, move as fast as you can to the third hallway and lock the door at the end of the hallway. It is a matter of life or death that you lock that door before 12am. If you don't, then you're done for. After you lock the door, use the flashlight provided and quickly turn around and flash it down the hallway. Make sure you close your eyes before doing something and keep flashing it for 30 seconds. Make sure that you do not open your eyes before the 30 seconds have passed. Step 4. This is the most important step. At exactly 12.30am, make your way back to the employee's room. Go to the door in the back and enter the following code. 2598. You won't have much time before he tries to get you. Once you're in the room, stay there until dawn. There will be a few cameras in the room. Watch them and make sure nothing goes wrong. The cameras are positioned on different floors and there is one that's positioned outside the security room. Some various things to know also is that the reason you need to move quickly is that there is something that lurks in the building and it's not like the others. I don't know exactly what it is but you do not want it catching you. It can't stand light so for whatever reason you see it. You may only have a couple of seconds to use your flashlight before it kills you. Again, welcome to the family. I was honestly in shock. What in the world did I get myself into? This had to be a joke, but somehow I knew that it wasn't. I looked at the time and it was 8.58pm. I quickly opened the door and made my way to the restroom. And I looked at my watch and it was now 9pm. I locked the door and got some cleaner and a rag and I started to clean the mirror. I heard something trying to open the door and it let out a high-pitched scream. After what felt like an eternity, it left. I finished cleaning the room and ran as quickly as I could to the second room in the hallway. I unlocked it and shut the door and then locked it. I took a minute to catch my breath and I looked around the room. It was a dirty apartment room with old furniture. I walked around and sat down on the couch in the middle of the room. It wasn't very bright, but you could still see everything in it. I looked at the time. It was 10.22pm. I had to stay until 11. I looked around some more and noticed eventually. Uh, something was off. There is a figure at the end of the room. It almost blended in with the darkness and it had an unnaturally wide grin and pure blue eyes. I stared at it for a while and it never moved an inch the entire time I was in that room. It was finally 11pm and I got up and ran out of the room and to the kitchen. 
I turned on the lights like the instructions said and I started to clean the floors. Almost immediately, I heard a deep growl. It was almost human, but it had a demonic echo to it. I ignored it and I keep cleaning. A minute later, I started feeling like I was being watched. Like something was staring deep into my soul. In the corner of my eye, I saw two white eyes staring at me. I did my best to ignore it. Once I emptied the fridge, the eyes got closer to me. I started to hear what sounded like someone calling me, but I kept ignoring it. After I cleaned the kitchen, I sprinted to the third hallway. The building was pitch black, and the only way I could tell where I was going was by a few dimly lit lights that marked the rooms. The entire time during my shift, I felt like something was chasing me, like something wanted to rip me apart. That only made me run faster. I eventually made it down the hallway after what felt like an eternity, and I locked the door. Immediately after that, I felt something bang up against the door and scratch at it. I fell back and after a few seconds, I remembered that I needed to get my flashlight. I got it out, turned it on and turned back, closing my eyes. I heard a loud screech, like something was in extreme pain. It was almost deafening. Thirty seconds had passed and the screeching was gone. I opened my eyes and ran to the security room. On my way there, I tripped and as I did, I heard something running towards me. I was scared out of my mind and I turned on my flashlight and I shined it down the hallway. For a split second, I saw a figure run back into the darkness. I wasn't able to get a good look at it. I made my way back to the employee room and I got to the door, used the code and I closed it. I took a deep breath and wondered what the heck I got myself into for a few minutes. After I looked around the room, it was a small, brightly lit room with seven cameras, one for each floor and the one outside the security room. I walked to the cameras and I looked at them. Every floor in the building was pitch black, with the exception of dimly lit lights marking rooms and such. About an hour passed and nothing really happened, except for the occasional scratching at the door. Although at 4am, I saw something in the camera on the first floor. There was a figure that looked just like my daughter staring into the camera. My eyes widened and I wondered what the heck was going on. She said, Please, Daddy, help us. I'm scared. She was crying uncontrollably, and I tried to open the door, but it was locked. I tried to unlock it, but nothing happened. I kept trying to unlock the door, and I tried to break it down, but it didn't even budge. There was a phone, and I tried to call the police, but as soon as I did, I would hear a loud, deafening screech coming from the end of the phone. I recoiled, and I held my ear. I looked at the camera, and Alexa was still crying. Eventually, something started to approach her. She looked and screamed, and for a second, I saw something jump at her, but the camera then went out. I started shaking, and my eyes teared up. I began frantically banging against the door to open it, but to no avail. I slid down the door, and I started sobbing. I thought to myself, How the heck did she even get in here? What happened to her babysitter? What was that thing? I lost the only thing I had left in the world. After about 20 minutes, I heard the phone ring. I answered it, and it was Mr. Jackson over the line. 
Hey, Yuri, I just wanted to check on things and see how. I interrupted him and said, Listen, why didn't you tell me this building was haunted? And how the heck did my daughter get inside here? I just watched you get ripped to shreds by some demon. Whoa, whoa, calm down, Yuri. Listen, you were hallucinating. I forgot to mention that in the instructions. The creature will try to trick you into coming out. Alexis, home safe in bed. I calmed down but realized what he said. Wait, how do you know what my daughter's name is? The line went dead. I felt an extreme rage and sadness come over me. Was my daughter dead? Was she alive? Am I hallucinating? I don't know. All I know is that I'm trapped in a building with a bunch of demons that want to kill me. I tried my best not to panic. My daughter has to be okay. That was just a hallucination. She's okay. I said to myself as I took a deep breath. It was finally dawn and my shift had ended. The door unlocked and I ran out as quickly as I could. Got into my car and I drove back home. To say that I broke the speed limit was an understatement. I had to be going about 80 miles per hour. Eventually, I made it home. Opened my door and I called for Alexa. Nothing. I called her again, still nothing. I ran up to her room, each step heavier than the other. I opened the door and I saw her sleeping in bed. I ran to her and I hugged her so tightly. She woke up and asked what I was doing. Alexa, God, I'm so glad you're okay. I was trying not to cry. Of course I'm okay, Daddy. Why wouldn't I be? She asked, still half asleep. I hugged her again and I looked at her. But then I noticed something. Her eyes. They were pure blue. Is something wrong, Daddy? She started to form an unnaturally wide grin. And then I realized this wasn't my daughter. This was that thing from the building. I stood up and started breathing heavily. I ran out of the room and locked the door. I yelled for the babysitter and no one replied. I looked around and I noticed a trail of blood leading to my room. I reluctantly walked towards it. And there I saw the mangled body of the babysitter. Her head split in half and her organs spread out. I vomited and tried to call the police. But the line was dead. I even tried to run out of the house but the door wouldn't budge. And the windows wouldn't break. I was trapped in this house with that thing. I ran back into my room and saw a note in the bed and a check. The note said, Congratulations on surviving the night. However, it seems that you won't be back for the second night. I'm sorry about your daughter, but she'll make a fine addition to the family. As will you. I hope it won't be too painful. From Mr. Jackson. How could he... I should have known this was all a trick, but I was too dumb to realize it. My daughter is gone because of me, and soon I'll join her. I know you all probably don't believe me, but honestly, I don't care. I don't know why I even wrote this all out. I'm so sorry, Alexa. I'll see you soon. Good Vibrations as a Park Ranger Written by Vaughn Ashby
the Beach Boys harmonized their intent to have good vibrations as their music filled the inside of Owen's Jeep. His finger rested casually on the radio dial and his palm on the gear shifter. It had been an unpleasant night. Tears stained his cheeks. The size matched the size of the raindrops that hammered his window. But that was Owen. Everything he did was big. Big tears, big gestures, big muscles. If he had a motto, that would be it. He loved hard and fell harder. The lights from his jeep reflected off the rain-drenched pavement. The yellow lines seemed to jump at him as he passed over each. He always drove down the center of the road, aka playing Pac-Man, when it was dark like this. There were limited streetlights around the park, part of a national movement to limit light pollution in federally funded areas. Owen was all for whatever kept the park from becoming the Vegas version of a park. He didn't want brand name stores in the town. He didn't want trailers the size of houses filling up the campground. He just wanted nature to be enjoyed in the way that it was intended to be. Which is to say with a cup of coffee, a tent, and a beautiful woman next to him. The backpack on the seat next to Owen trembled at the rumble of the jeep. Owen glanced over to it and placed his hand on it. He could still feel the little box under the fabric. Another fresh round of tears broke free from his eyes. He wiped them. As he passed a road sign that stated, Brightness Falls, the town site for the park was only 10 kilometers away. He loved the town. It was the only one you could ever see himself living in. The quintessential mountain town. He had been lucky enough to get a job in the park as a ranger when they had opened the park back up, after that whole incident with the writer. And every day since he had been living his best life. They were paying him to hike, swim, yell at idiots, and take care of this magical place. If he could have sex with the park, he would have. Which, to be fair, felt like he was on his way to do. Every morning, he would get up, make coffee, drive to another part of the park to enjoy the sunrise. And then he would break out his phone and record another episode of his podcast, Good Vibrations, pairing morning sunrises with Beach Boy songs. The gist of the show was that he would describe where he was, the sunrise is coffee, and finally what Beach Boy's song went best with it all. It was wildly unpopular, but he did it for himself. And if the world wasn't as sophisticated as himself, then they could sail on. Carolyn was supposed to join him today. It was episode 100. She was going to be his first official guest on the show. But that wasn't going to happen now. Not after last night. Their fight had been such a huge blowout that he ended up staying out at the ranger outpost overnight. The mosquitoes were very thankful for it. Owen's back wasn't. The cots at the outpost were garbage and not built for a man of his size. They never tell you that once you start exercising your shoulders, they're going to be too big for just about everything. The number of door frames that he bumped into now was embarrassing. But despite the constant battle with door frames, and all the other narrow-built stuff in the world, it was well worth it. He had been born skinny, and he had been that for most of his life. It drove him crazy. 
mainly the whole never being able to talk about it without fears of people not understanding. You're allowed to say that you need to lose weight in society, but you can't say that you need to gain some. The rain increased its onslaught on the vehicle's window. Droplets the size of Owen's nipples hammered the glass. He clicked the wipers on. The two long blades cut through the rain with lethal water force, leaving a clear view to see for only a second before they completed their journey back to where they had started. The Beach Boys harmonized their intent to have good vibrations as the music filled the inside of Owen's Jeep. His finger rested casually on the radio dial and his palm on the gear shifter. Owen shook his head. Were they playing the same song twice in a row? That was odd. But what do you expect from an all-Beach Boys satellite radio channel? Another fresh round of tears broke free from Owen's eyes. He wiped at them as he passed a road sign that stated, Brightness Falls, the town site for the park, was only still 10 kilometers away. What? Owen muttered to himself. The local kids must have been farting around with the park signs again. They'd done it as well for the town's annual festival, Brightfest, when it had been on. They had changed the sign from Brightfest to Girthfest. Most people had laughed it off, though a few as always were upset that the B was missing. They didn't think their money should have to pay to buy a new letter. Owen had been in the prior group. He had been the first to post it on his podcast social media pages. He had gotten a lot of likes. Who knew people like Girth? He had suspected it for years, but he had never received that larger of a confirmation. Still, messing with a festival sign was one thing. Changing a distance marker that was outside the town site, well, that was a federal fine. He'd have to scare them straight with his best ranger voice. Owen grabbed his walkie from his backpack, double-checked the power and channel, and then squeezed the talk button. Hey, Beck, you up yet? Nothing but a static buzz greeted him. Back. Again, nothing but static. That was odd. She was always up before him. It was her job to make sure that all the animals being tracked by the park rangers were nowhere near the town or popular visiting locations within the park. It never ended well when a bear or moose got too close to a group of tourists. The tourists seemed to lose their common sense when it came to dangerous animals. The bear, on the other hand, just wanted to eat, and a stupid tourist was a delicious snack. So, Beck made sure to keep the two groups apart. She liked to get up early to do so. Beck, are you there? Owen said as he tried one last time. A strange static echoed through the walkie. Owen turned the radio volume up and he held the walkie up to his ear. The sound reminded him of what the dial-up internet at his parents' house used to sound like. Lots of strange clicks and squelches. The Beach Boys harmonized their intent to have good vibrations as their music filled the inside of Owen's Jeep. His finger rested casually on the radio dial and his palm on the gear shifter. The walkie was gone. Owen shook his head. What the heck? Another round of tears on Owen's face. He stared at the Brightness Falls sign as it passed by, still only 10 kilometers away. Owen slammed on the brakes and glanced behind him at the sign. One sign change was one thing, but there weren't that many signs between the ranger station and the town. 
The kids would have had to add signs to change, but he wasn't sure that they had that kind of dedication to a prank. But what was with the music? Why did the radio keep going back to the same song? Plus, it wasn't even on a few seconds ago. And then, there was the walkie that seemed to have vanished from his hand. Owen patted his backpack. He could feel the radio along with the little box inside. How it had gone from his hand to his backpack. Owen reached into the bag for his cell phone as he turned back around. The Beach Boys harmonized and filled the inside of Owen's Jeep. His finger rested on the radio dial and his palm on the gear shifter. Tears ran down Owen's face and he was moving again, despite having just stopped to look at the back of the sign. The very sign that just passed him by again, stating the town was only 10 kilometers away. What in the world? Owen muttered as he smashed the radio power button with his fist and drove his foot down hard on the brake. The Beach Boys harmonized. Owen's finger rested on the radio dial and his palm on the gear shifter. Tears on his face. The 10 kilometer away sign passed by again, as if it was giving him the finger. Well, this was just great. Was he in some kind of Groundhog's Day loop thing? At least that's what it seemed like. But why had he sometimes restarted it quicker than others? Apparently turning the radio off was a big no-no. Rain pelted the window. Instinctively, Owen turned the wipers on. The Beach Boys harmonized. Owen's finger rested on the radio dial and his palm on the shifter. Tears on his face. There was that 10-kilometer sign again. Okay, so no wipers. This time, when the rain got harder, he left the wipers off, despite how hard it was to see. He squinted to look through the massive drops. Okay, so far so good. He glanced in the rearview mirror. The sign was fading into the background. Owen laughed. Take that, you stupid groundhog time looping sign. He flicked the sign the middle finger and laughed again. The Beach Boys harmonized. Owen's finger rested on the radio dial and his palm on the shifter. Tears on his face. And there was that stupid groundhog time looping sign. Again, he left the wipers off when the rain started and watched the sign fade into the distance behind him. Now what? What had been done to cause the loop to restart last time? Giving the sign the finger... Who knew science could be so sensitive? So, what should he do? He really hated all this paranormal stuff, but he... Beck, she loved this garbage. He grabbed the walkie and remembered he had just tried calling her and got nothing but those weird sounds. So, she wasn't going to be much help. This all felt way out of his comfort zone. He liked the Beach Boys, and lifting heavy things and then putting them down... Neither seemed applicable to whatever was happening to him. A thunderous crack echoed through the jeep cab over the sound of the rain pelting the roof. Owen tried to see between raindrops what it was. It wasn't a sound that was local to the park. He had never heard it before. It sounded like something massive snapping in two. Crap. Owen whispered as he watched a commercial airplane plumbing into the ground. It streaked across the front window of his jeep. The plane's engines blazed red, obviously on fire, definitely not normal. He couldn't even remember the last time he saw a plane fly over the park. He was pretty sure that it was a no-fly zone anyway, since the whole Brightness Falls incident. 
He watched as the airplane pulverized itself into the side of a mountain, not far away from the town. A trail of fire followed it up. The forest around the crash site smoked. God, even with rain like this, a fire that size was going to spread easily through the forest. It had been years since they had had the money to remove all the underbrush and kindling. The government had felt that forest firefighting wasn't worth the investment. As Owen watched the fire spread down the mountain, his anger grew, and he really wished that he could do something about this and the government would actually help them out. There is a blur through the raindrops as something ran from the tree line to the road. Distracted by the plane crash and fire, Owen reacted slowly as a moose met the front of Owen's jeep. Its height sent the poor animal careening over the top of the vehicle. Blood from the unfortunate creature mixed with the rainwater. Owen badly wanted to turn the wipers on, but the Beach Boys harmonized. Owen's finger rested on the radio dial and his palm on the shifter. Tears on his face, the moose's blood was gone, but the sign was back. He grabbed his radio. He had to let someone know about the plane crash that was about to happen. Maybe he could stop it. He pressed the walkie button and was greeted by the strange noise. Sweet surfing safari. Owen yelled as he rolled his window down, though before he could throw the walkie out. The Beach Boys harmonized. His finger rested on the radio dial, palm on the shifter, and there was the sign. He wanted to punch every inch of the inside of his Jeep, and then get out and punch everything on the outside too. He closed his eyes and took a deep breath. He wondered what Carolyn was doing. He wasn't sure that how many loops he had been through so far, but it felt like forever since he had seen her. And while he was still upset about the night before, he still loved her. Crisis and time loops tended to remind you of the important things in life. Owen opened his eyes as the sign passed by again. So did the moose. What was he supposed to do about the moose hitting the jeep? Was he supposed to do something or not do something? He ignored the rain as he thought about it. He was actually getting used to driving through the big drops. After passing by the sign at least 30 more times, he had lost count after the first 23. His frustration was reaching Hulk levels. If he could shred his pants and grow 20 size larger, he'd gladly do so. At least that would be a cathartic release. This was well. It was hell. His own personal Owen Hell. No Carolyn, a forest fire, plane crash, a murdered moose, a broken radio, a missing podcast opportunity. The recurring song was killing his love of one of his favorite Beach Boy songs. And the worst of all, he felt like a complete idiot for not being able to figure any of this out. He was wondering if maybe his mom had been humoring him the entire time about being special. He was pretty sure a brick sitting here in the gas puddle could do a better job than he could. He tried opening the window to various heights, slowing down, shifting gears, turning the AC on and off, and a few dozen more that he couldn't even remember now. The worst part of it was that even if he got past the moose, then what? He would have to figure out another thing. He would have to start this whole process over. The more that he thought about it, the more shocked he was that he had made it this far. Frustrated and taking a page from the Brick's book, Owen hammered on the gas. What if he just crashed the car, drove his Jeep right into a tree? And would that do anything? The Jeep passed 88 miles per hour. Maybe he could. 
The moose bounded over the road in the jeep's rearview mirror. Owen threw his hands in the air. Yeah, take that, you stupid inanimate object. Owen yelled at the sign as it vanished from his rearview mirror. He had done it. He had gotten past the moose and out of the loop. Except... The Beach Boys harmonized. Owen's finger rested on the radio dial and his palm on the shifter. Tears on his face, the sign, like a giant middle finger, passed by the jeep. I found an old pirate ship. Here is what happened next. Written by Mr. Mills of 45. I like to go out on my boat for just the sheer pleasure. There is nothing like the elegant waves of the sea and sounds of nothing but Mother Nature all around you. Until you get seasick, that is. Then it kind of sucks. I'm not a fisherman, marine biologist, or any sorts of explorer. Heck, I'm definitely not going to be that last one after what happened to me the most recent time I was out on the waters. For some background, I'm a lottery winner, one of the ones who wasn't dumb enough to blow their money within the first six months of having it. Not saying that I'm some sort of finance-obsessed freak, I do like to enjoy my wealth. But I just don't want to go overboard and buy a mansion right off the bat. I obviously won't be giving out details of who I am or any particular information about where I live, but as a codename... You may call me David. Something simple and right to the point. I will also be redacting and subtracting names of places, as well as giving code names to other people involved. I was out one day, cruising along the waves on my admittedly small motorboat, a smile on my face, a case of beer in the cockpit, and nothing but pure and utter joy running through my veins. It seemed like life couldn't be any better. And in all honesty, it really couldn't. At one point, I switched off the motor and simply let the boat float along. God, was that a mistake. I peered over the side, glancing down at all the marine life below me. All sorts of fish and crustaceans. I was even sure I could see what looked to be a coral reef towards the ocean floor. It was a pleasant sight on the eyes. I'm a person who finds fun in simple things like this. Too many cynics exist in the world. And many people would add the phrase, these days after that sentence. But people like that have existed since the dawn of time. It's nothing new. I just don't see the point of making a big fuss about things that are insignificant in the grand scheme of enjoyment and simple pleasure. It's like those people who try to apply real-life logic to sci-fi or horror movies. They know who they are. The ones who whine about stuff like characters calling a magazine a club are not calling the police when they're in the middle of running from a 10-foot-tall demon creature that can bend reality. But I'm rambling. The point is, I'm a pretty civil-minded guy, and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with taking life as it comes and wanting to enjoy the basic pleasures without analyzing every single detail. Anyway, there I was, sitting in towards the rear of the boat with my feet up and a beer in my hand, drinking and watching the ocean do its thing. And let me tell you, it did its thing alright. 
It took me a minute to notice due to the fact that I was a tiny bit buzzed. But the sky began to become overcast. Slowly but surely, I was engulfed in the dim light of the storm clouds forming above. Soon enough, the waves had started to pick up, getting a little bit more powerful each time I felt them pass underneath the boat. Rocking it violently as the boat continued to sit on the surface. I got up, figuring it was probably a good time to probably head back to shore, and by extension, safety. I returned to the cockpit, sat down and attempted to turn the engine on to get it going. The boat moved and everything seemed to be completely fine. But the waves, the waves were starting to approach a more dangerous state, even threatening to completely flip my boat over. I did my best to navigate through the rough conditions, although going too fast would result in only making it worse. But it's hard to have restraints when you feel like your own life may be on the line. Nonetheless, I tried to stay calm and rational. I wanted to make it out of this unscathed. If I'm being totally honest, the fear of being stranded in the middle of the sea terrifies me far more than death ever could. Water splashed itself inside the cockpit. My clothes were drenched within seconds. Not too long after that, I was starting to cough up water. I still tried to push on, desperate to make it back to shore. But the ocean didn't seem to want to let me leave. It kept me where I was, thrashing my boat back and forth and letting me know I definitely wasn't the one in control. Far from it. What was once the fresh-smelling, colorful, and enchanting view of the aquatic habitat was now transforming into a watery hell. The sky above me had now become almost completely darkened by these storm clouds, giving the sea below a much more unsettling appearance. Eventually, it came to a point where I had realized that I wasn't going to be able to maneuver my way out of here on my own. I looked around with panic spread across my face, reaching into my pocket and trying to grab my phone to call for help. I frantically attempted to retrieve my phone, only to find that it wasn't in my pocket. I had seemingly forgotten it back home. A mistake that I made all too often, and one that was now going to cost me dearly. I cursed and swore obnoxiously at the revelation, feeling that I had just foolishly sealed my own fate. As if it couldn't get any worse, the waves became stronger. Soon, I myself was hanging on for dear life on the boat as I tried not to fall off the sides and back. I was repeatedly thrown around like a ragdoll, as if I only weighed a few pounds instead of 200. Eventually, I was jerked forward by the force of a wave colliding with the boat. I unconsciously took a wrong step, fell forward, and slammed my head onto one of the benches inside the boat, causing me to black out. I have no idea how or what transpired in the time that I was out cold, but when I had awoken, I was still in the boat, still on the ocean. Except this time, the sea had returned to its more soothing and relaxed state, as it had been previously before the storm, the sun now out once again and brighter than ever. Without any device to tell the time or location, not that I was sure that it would work that well out here anyway. I was at a loss for how much daylight I may have had left. I was still laying on the floor of the boat, 
My head was horrendously aching, and I felt slightly dizzy. I was sure that I'd ended up getting a slight concussion from the head. It took me a few minutes of struggling and grunting to get back to my feet. When I glanced forward, I was met with the sight of what looked to be an aquatic cave opening in front of me. It was attached to a small, rocky, and rough little island terrain. Definitely not something that you could live on. Not without getting constantly impaled anyway. I was puzzled as to where I had ended up. This didn't look like anything I had seen before in my usual area. I spun around, attempting to spot some other landmass or place to park the boat and get out, but only the open ocean stared back at me. Everything from my heart to my bones told me not to go into the cave. I tried to fire up the motor and drive out into the sea, wanting to not even give myself the chance to change my mind. But the motor was completely fried. The paddle that I had brought along in case of such an instance taking place was also gone, probably floating along the surface somewhere dozens of miles away. And, like a moron, I hadn't brought any food besides the beer. Not that you could really call that food to begin with. Although it didn't matter much, because the beer that I had yet to drink was also gone, lost to the vast emptiness of the sea. Now, the cave seemed like the only option. Or maybe I was just panicking too much. As I said, I try not to stress about things. It's unhealthy and unproductive. But this, this is an entirely different ballgame. The heat from the sun was beginning to get to me. I know that it wouldn't be long before I obtained a nasty sunburn. Not to mention the fact that the brightness of the light was only increasing my current dizziness. I reached over the side of the boat and shoved about half my forearm through the surface of the water. The moisture was unnaturally relieving on my arm. I was even tempted to scoop up some of the liquid and take a gulp. But seeing as it was salt water, that would only make things worse. I waved my arm in a stroking manner through the water using it as a makeshift paddle to edge myself closer toward the entrance of the cave. As I got closer and the light assisted my vision, I could see the inside was far bigger than what I had originally assumed. A fluorescent glow seeped its way from the waves below, like a natural aquatic lamp. I was no expert on marine life, so I had no idea what caused it, but it was absolutely breathtaking. A gorgeous, light red and pink hue that lit the inside more than well enough for me to see. I kept stroking my way forward, switching arms in the process as the original was stinging from the buildup of muscle fatigue. The geometry of the cave became more and more open. The expansiveness of the cave was far beyond what the entrance made look possible. The light protruding from the water now began to shift to a lighter blue instead of a previous red, illuminating the rocky walls and small vermin living between these stones hanging from the ceiling. And then I spotted a large object floating in the water further down the cave. It put my boat to shame in just mass alone. I strained my neck to look up and get a full view of what I was seeing. There, right in front of me, sat a ship, an old wooden abandoned ship, a black flag in the front and back as the sails with a skull and crossbones in the middle. 
It was a pretty stereotypical pirate ship, but still a sight to behold nonetheless. Most of these sails themselves had begun to wear, along with the wood being rotted in many spots, especially towards the bottom. I was amazed. The panic and hesitance I felt previously had subsided. It was clearly old and had been in here for quite a while, leaning slightly to the right of the cave, a hole on its side that allowed a small pool of water to rest in the bottom deck. I fought past the fatigue and paddled myself closer, with both arms this time, eager to find what might be waiting for me in the large relic. I'll admit as I got closer, and the light coming from underwater became less potent, the ship definitely revealed itself to have a more haunting appearance. But for some reason, I simply didn't care. What if I found treasure? Stuff to make me even richer than I already was. What once felt like a nightmare gone wrong was now an exhilarating adventure. I finally made it to the hole in the bottom of the ship, stopped my paddling and I stood up in the boat. It rocked slightly due to the change in weight placement. I leaned in as far as I could without stepping off the boat, trying to get a peek into the interior, or what was left of it at least. The vast majority of it was empty, an array of spiderwebs covering the interior. A frown crept onto my face, being disappointed that I had seemingly found nothing of value. However, when I glanced toward the right and I squinted my eyes, I could just about make out the shine of what looked to be a small piece of metal. I leaned forward slightly further, nearly tripping and face-planting in the process. It was a dark wooden chest. The piece of metal was what I assumed to be the lock. I turned and checked behind me, just to make sure that I was completely alone. That's when I laid eyes upon an unsettling but simultaneously interesting sight. It was a skeleton laying on a patch of rock next to the boat. A real skeleton. Cobwebs between its teeth and no life in its eyes. There wasn't a single patch of skin left on the bones. But on the top of its head sat a pirate hat. Next to its bony hand was a sword laid out on the rock formation. And the small chance that I did encounter something dangerous in there, I decided it was worth grabbing the sword. I maneuvered over the rock formation, bent down and picked the large blade up. It gleamed in the dim lighting of this section of the cave. I jumped back into the boat, and then crouched down and I stepped into the ship, once again checking my surroundings. Jesus, I blurted seeing that I had underestimated just how thick these spiderwebs were. But now that I was closer, I could see this structure seemed to be infested with arachnids. I raised the lengthy blade and began to swing frantically, cutting through as many of the webs as I could, although it was more taxing than what I had originally predicted due to my arm already being heavily exerted from the paddling. I was spitting up some of the webs and rubbing them out of my eyes. A large amount clumped itself into my hair, which I didn't even want to begin to deal with. I was just feet away from the chest, the metal lock shining even brighter than before. It was truly a sight to behold. 
I see you've taken an interest in my goodies. I jumped when I heard the voice from behind, gripping the sword tightly as I nearly yelped like a small animal. It was soft yet deep, something you would expect from a grandfather. I hesitantly turned around, making sure to keep the sword grasped firmly as I was about to lock eyes with the source of the voice. Immediately I froze, more out of confusion than fear, because there was no source, no body, no demon or ghoul, nothing. It was disembodied, or so I thought. Over here, you fool, it bellowed, now becoming clearly impatient in its tone. I looked over to the hole of the ship where I had originally entered. Past that, I still saw the skeleton laying on the rock. The skeleton in which I took the sword from. You came for my treasure, yes. Is that what you want? Even more riches than you already have. You are quite the greedy man. That much is clear. The jaw and or mouth of the skeleton didn't move his mouth as he spoke. In fact, he didn't move at all. But now that I was made aware of it, I could trace the voice coming right from the spot that he was laying. How, how do you know about my money? I stuttered, attempting to feign confidence and mask my unease. The skeleton simply laughed. Not an obnoxious, evil, mustache-twirling villain laugh that you would expect, but rather that of someone in a comedy club who had just been told a decent joke. For a man who loves the fantastical, you seem quite ignorant when you finally encounter it. You hear me, a dead man. Speaking without movement of my lips or possession of my flesh, yet you question how I know of your material prosperity. No, that's not possible, I shot back. Fine, continue to live in ignorance, but I can get you access to the riches inside that chest that you've been eyeing. I know you desire it more than anything. I think I'm perfectly capable of opening it myself, I replied turning and raising the sword to slice the integrity of the lock. I pulled back with all my might and I came down on the chest. The sword had simply been split into two. The remaining half that hadn't fallen off was smoking, as if it had just been shoved inside a pit of hot coals. The chest was undamaged. A wave of relief came over me knowing that I was at least smart enough to have not touched it with my bare hands. The skeleton cackled this time in a much more taunting manner, as if to make fun of me and laugh at my futile attempt to get the chest open. Well, as you see, you don't have the means to get what you want. Only I can help you, which is why you should accept my proposal. Think bigger than what you've seen and heard. Open yourself to new possibility. I whipped around to stare back at the unmoving pile of bones once more, Frustration and malice now overtaking my fear. If you're so smart, then you do it. You're nothing but a decayed corpse. I have no reason to be scared in the first place. I erupted, dropping the last half of the sword as punctuated by my tirade. Suddenly, I was thrown against a wall opposite the chest by an unseen forest. My body couldn't move forward or fight against it, no matter how hard I tried. I was stuck there, pinned against the wall via supernatural means. 
You are amusing, but I would advise you not to overstep your boundaries. I am no benevolent figure. If you continue to vex me, I will kill you. Understood? The force only increased against my body, threatening to crush my bones and flatten me like a human pancake. Is that understood? The skeleton asked again, this time much more apathetically, saying and knowing he was already aware of my response. Yes, I coughed, now beginning to have my airflow restricted. Finally, the strange entity released me. I quickly fell to the ground, slightly scraping my hands and knees on the wood. I coughed a few more times, running my hands along my throat to feel any damage. Now that you remember where you stand, I'll ask you one last time. Do you want me to give you access to the treasure that you seek, as long as you pay my price? What's the price? I asked, raising myself back up on two legs, stumbling back as I fought to keep my balance. Well, the price is that I can't tell you what your consequences are. They will appear, that is for sure but nothing I do will affect you directly, depending on your perspective. It all weighs on your decisions and choices. I would be cautious of how you go about your affairs. Why would I make a deal when you're being so vague about the terms? What, do you want my soul or something? The skeleton chuckled absently. No. And because the moment you saw that chest you knew that next to nothing would stop you from getting what's inside. Until I did. You are no criminal mastermind, no cruel dictator, or evil ruler. But you are no saint either. Your values are not that of the spiritual. Both you and I know that full well. If all of your financial troubles have already disappeared long ago, imagine what you can do with this. And seeing as you are a man of material, that appeals to you as a fresh corpse appeals to a scavenger. As hard as it is to admit it, he's right. I like money, my boat, as much as I come out onto the ocean and enjoy the view of the water and the simple beauty of nature. Items of monetary value will always be what I care for most. But I still wasn't quite convinced about what he was proposing. How do I know you're not playing me? I've seen this sort of thing in movies all the time. There's a catch somewhere, there always is. I went on, shocked at how cynical my speech sounded coming out. And despite my disdain for people of such nature, I was beginning to sound just like them. But I mean, who wouldn't in this scenario? What I've told you is what will be transacted. Nothing comes free and your skepticism is expected. But I know you are a man who loves to live without question, to experience your days without troubles or challenges, do you not? Yes, I said, feeling slightly humiliated. Then what are you waiting for? All you need to do is say the words. The skeleton persisted. Two simple words. A slow exhale left my mouth. My eyes darted between the ceiling and floor as my brain lit up with contemplation. Something told me maybe I should truly listen to him after all. As moronic as it sounds, he knows mountains more than me, doesn't he? I'm gonna die someday anyway, so 
Why not add to my fortune and enjoy it for the next five or so decades that I have left on Earth? If it doesn't harm me, then what do I truly have to lose? I accept. I finally confirmed, looking the skeleton directly in those hollow eyes. Immediately, I heard the click of the lock on the chest. A low creak echoed through the ship as it slowly swung open to reveal its bright, shiny, and mesmerizing contents. Gold, rubies, diamonds, emeralds, you name it. All sorts of precious metals and jewels were in there. It was the most entrancing thing I'd ever laid my eyes upon. Far more than the exotic entrance to the cave. I turned back to the skeleton entity to usher him a thank you, only to see that he had disappeared completely, as well as the two halves of the sword. I reached down to begin indulging in the treasure, only to become dizzy as soon as my hands approached the jewels. It was powerfully overwhelming, as if someone force-fed me pills that were specifically designed to make me feel like the world was tipping over like a spilled glass. I tried to keep my balance, hitting the sides of my body against the wood of the ship and seeing that I had nothing to grab onto. Soon enough, my vision became blurry and my brain couldn't take it anymore. I slowly felt the world fade away as everything went black and I lost consciousness for the second time. When I came to, I was back in my bedroom at home. Asking how I got there seemed silly at this point, considering what had transpired so far. There I laid, wiping the grog from my eyes and trying to look around for the chest or a sign of my now increased wealth. My concussion also seemed to have been cured, which was a nice bonus. I got up, rummaged through my closet, peeked under my bed and looked through all my drawers. After searching the room and coming up with nothing, I started to immediately assume that I might have been played, slapping myself in the forehead for being so stupidly foolish. But the thing is, I felt different than I did back at the cave. This time, my thought process felt much more clear and concise. Decisions, logic, and basic critical thinking were more on the forefront of my mind. Something in that cave messed with my head like it was a drug. I wasn't my usual self. The skeleton. Maybe the skeleton had did something to me. Manipulated and bent my mental state, causing me to be more open to suggestions. Just as I was about to break down from the stress, a notification popped up on my phone as I laid it next to my bed. It was from my bank. And let me tell you my mood changed swiftly when I read the details. My balance, already being tremendously high from my lottery winnings, had increased by more than four times its original amount. And although in most situations, eyebrows from the bank would have been raised about a huge sudden change in funds like that, that more than likely wouldn't apply in this scenario, due to the way that it got there in the first place. Plus, he said nothing he did directly would affect me. It was all based on what I did. So I did what anyone would do after something like this. I went shopping. And no, I don't mean a crazy spending spree in which I blow all the money. As I've stated before, I don't overspend. But this was an opportunity to treat myself a bit. The first thing that I bought was a brand new flat screen for my living room. 
I lived alone and didn't have anyone around to worry about, and kids that could potentially end up breaking it. And the lady at the counter who had rung it up almost seemed just as happy as I was. We conversed as a couple of other employees were strapping the thing to a flatbed cart to wheel it out to my car. You made a good choice. I'm sure your family's gonna love watching their favorite movies on that thing. She smiled. Oh, actually, I'm on my own at the moment. I replied without much flair. I'll be honest, she was cute. Not some supermodel, over the top, curvaceous lady with zero blemishes, but definitely attractive. Her hair was up in a ponytail, complemented by her feminine build. A pair of chocolate brown eyes sat below her forehead. Oh, I see. Well, everyone deserves to treat themselves once in a while, don't you think? She punctuates by grabbing a Sharpie marker and writing something down on my receipt. She reached over the counter and handed it to me with the opposite side turned up. I quickly flipped it over to be met with the sight of her phone number in a black, bold font. Uh, name's Haley, by the way, she giggled, pointing to her name tag on her shirt. I'm not really supposed to do that, but if you ever want to see me when I'm actually put together, and not in this crappy uniform, maybe you could give me a call. I get home around six. Haley, I thought, and turning to follow the guys rolling the flatbed cart out to my car. In the past, romance had never usually been an important interest for me. I had my fair share of flings, women coming and going here and there. But commitment and a genuine relationship were definitely alien in the way that I lived my life up to this point. I enjoyed my independence and not having to share my assets. So, I thought with all these strange, horrifying, and exciting events happening to me lately, I would try something new. After all, what could truly go wrong? I didn't expect a whole lot to happen, but maybe a couple of dates wouldn't be so bad. I went home that night, set the TV up, and connected it with my cable. The first thing I did was check out the evening news. Wanting to get a sample of just how crisp this thing was outside of the store. I admittedly only watched it for a few short seconds before pulling out my phone in order to call Haley. 8.07 p.m. Read the time on my phone. She would have gotten home about two hours ago. Man, I wanted to call now before it got too late. After I dialed, I was met with four rings and then a recorded voicemail message. So, I tried one more time, only to get the exact same result. She must be busy, is what ran through my head. All the way up until I overheard the voice of the news reporter coming from my new TV. A tragic accident on highway redacted has claimed the lives of two unfortunate drivers. 34-year-old Robert Kinling and 27-year-old Haley Henderson. The original cause of the collision is currently unknown, but more details will be available as the hours go by. You see, I played that off as a coincidence. That's how I tried to rationalize it. Nothing more than just two people having the same first name. That is until the pictures of the two drivers appeared on the screen. One was the guy who I of course didn't recognize. But when I glanced slightly to the left, there was Haley. 
the Haley who I had only spoken with just hours ago. She was gone, snatched away from life in the blink of an eye, and there was nothing that I could do about it. I wasn't distraught. I didn't break down in tears or even cry. Sure, I was bummed out, but my main area of thought was one of confusion. Things like this it just happen, I guess. Life is unpredictable. My tossed the receipt that she had written her phone number down into the trash. It felt the same as tossing out an old pair of dead batteries. It's just completely lost its purpose. The rest of my evening, and by extension night, was pretty eerie after hearing of what had happened. I grabbed a beer from the fridge and thought about going back on my boat the next day, only to remember that I no longer had it, and would more than likely have to buy a new one. Great, just what I needed, buying another freaking boat. The skeleton could give me a treasure chest full of jewels but not my dang boat bag. I fell asleep on the couch that night. The empty beer bottle laid resting itself on my chest as the birds chirped outside. That day, I thought I would try and lift my spirits by breaking in my new TV some more, but I only felt pathetically lethargic laying around and surfing through channel after channel, finding nothing to hold my attention. So, this time around, I took a trip to the bar. I figured that maybe some alcohol combined with a bit of watching some morons do dumb things might help me put my brain in a better spot. This place wasn't anything to write home about, and there were honestly better spots to go to in my town. But I didn't care, because this particular bar was what I was personally comfortable with and used to. Men yelled at every shot during their pool game. Fights broke out all the time and the bartenders were always getting on someone's butt about breaking stuff. Everyone here was really funny and enjoyable entertainment for me while I sipped my liquor. However, there was one bartender in particular that I slightly clicked with. Max. I don't know much about him other than his first name and the fact that he really loved to go hunting. He mentioned at least once every single time we delved into conversation. It was irritating, but tolerable. Hey, what's going on, David? He waved politely as I sat down on the stool. A friendly smile spread across his face. I simply gave a nod before responding. Mind if I get a shot of the good bourbon? I don't really feel like talking all that much until I've loosened up a bit. Max raised an eyebrow as he turned to grab a bottle. A long week? He asked as I shot my eyes down toward the counter. I tapped a couple of fingers against the counter, trying to determine how I should reply. My nails clicking against the wood with a certain rhythm. I ceased the tapping and was met with the sound of silence, as if everyone in the bar had simultaneously decided to play a game of who could be the quietest. I looked up. Wondering what had caused all the commotion and banter to come to such a sudden stop. That was extremely unusual in this place. Yes, a long week it has been. Isn't that correct, David? Said a familiar yet chilling voice in a loud but subtle whisper. I tilted my head up like a crazed pigeon. There, behind the bar, was the skeleton from the cave. This time, standing upright and actually moving. I could see most of the glasses and alcohol bottles through the gaps in his bones. 
Everyone else had seemingly vanished from the bar. It was just him and I. He stared down at me. Despite him lacking any flesh, eyebrows, or eyes themselves, I could tell what kind of look he was giving me. It was a glare of intrigue and curiosity, taunting and merciless. What, what are you doing here? I said, getting up off the stool and taking a step back. The skeleton leaned over the bar, placing his bony fingers on the counter as he laughed. He seemed completely unbothered, as if I was being the weird one. I'm simply here to check up on you, David, to see how this deal is treating you. I can see you've already used your increased wealth once so far. Can you leave me alone? I countered. I just want to have a drink. The skeleton tapped his teeth together in irritation. He lifted his skinless index finger and pointed at the stool that I was previously sitting at. Have a seat, David. You forgot. I make the rules and not you. I did as I was told with a reluctant sigh. Once again, the feeling of a genuine confusion creeping its way into my psyche. I've got a question, I said, and cupping my hands together and keeping my eyes locked on the skeleton's hollow ribcage. Oh, I know. Although, it would be more fun to hear you say it out loud, he teased. Did Haley have anything to do with the deal? I inquired. Did you just do that to mess with me? What do you truly want from me? The skeleton simply crossed his arms. As I've stated previously, I do nothing that affects the outcomes of your circumstances. Your choices are your own from the point that you receive the fortune. Maybe you will perhaps do something differently. Maybe you will not. But how this all ends is up to you. You'll have to learn and come up with the solution on your own. I simply observe and see your progress. There is a part of me right then and there, banging and clamoring for my lungs to allow me to scream, and shout at him that I already wanted this deal to be over. And before something worse had happened, I could tell this was far from over. It was just the beginning. But I knew I already accepted the terms and he wouldn't allow me to back out. Not now and maybe not ever. I let my gaze fall towards the floor, clenching my hands into fists on the counter, displaying nothing but futile frustration in front of a being who could kill me just by waving his finger. Without thinking, I quickly snapped my head up and shouted passionately, wanting some way to feel any sort of power, as some sort of control. Anything beyond how pathetic I felt, just sitting there helplessly, let me out. When I registered the area in front of me, the skeleton was gone, replaced by a highly confused and slightly scared Max, looking at me like I was an escaped mental patient. I was starting to wonder if that was actually the case at this point. The rest of the bar all turned their heads, pondering what it was I just screamed like a maniac about. Uh, nobody said you had to stay, man. I'm guessing that you changed your mind about that bourbon. Max asked, reaching for a shot glass. No, no, I pleaded. Give me the dang bourbon. Just got a lot of stuff going on up here. I said, pointing a finger towards my forehead. Max just went on to pour the drink, telling me that it was alright and I was fine as long as I didn't keep doing it. 
I quickly downed the shot. It hit with just the right amount of potency that I needed. I could feel it trickling down my esophagus and into my stomach. I sat around for a bit after, mainly watching the guys at the pool tables primitively argue over trivial things. It was highly amusing. A smile emerged as I felt myself relax. A fight broke out that caused Max and a couple of the bartenders to intervene and break it up. The bar was closing early that night, so I didn't get to stay as long as I had previously hoped. When I went home, I irresponsibly drove myself even after a couple more shots. And although I made it to my residence unscathed, I had one close call with a pickup at an intersection near my home. I kicked off my shoes and lazily slumped down out of my couch to turn on the TV, this time opting to watch a game instead of the news. In fact, I stayed off all news outlets, period, even on the internet for the whole night. A nightmare occurred sometime after I dozed off. It was vivid, far too vivid to seem like just an ordinary dream. It was as if someone had placed a Blu-ray disc inside my head and pressed play. I was alone, in the middle of what appeared to be a forest in the later hours of night. About 50 meters in front of me was a clearing in the trees. I ran towards it, not thinking, not processing. I just simply sprinted forward at breakneck speed. The shadows of the bushes and trees engulfed me as I ran. There were no sounds, not even crunching of branches underneath my footsteps. No, it was complete and utter silence. I made it into the clearing and there it sat. The treasure chest from the cave. That small metal lock shining in the night as it stared back at me, inviting me to be opened. I approached it with enthusiasm, rubbing my hands together as if trying to ignite a fire with them. Every step that I took only enhanced my excitement and glee. I reached a hand out towards the chest. My fingers were only inches away from making contact with the lock. I could feel my body shaking with joy, and my mind racing with fantasy after fantasy. And then the skeleton suddenly burst out of the chest, wrapping his bony fingers around my throat, and slowly squeezing my windpipe as if it were a soda can. He stared into my eyes, the structure of his jaw shifting as he attempted to smile. I am what you so desperately want to rid yourself of. You claim you are more than me. Yet, whenever you have the chance, the opportunity to let me go, you never do. You will never truly banish me. No, I'm stuck with you forever. I am a part of you. I always have been. Starting from childhood, if you're not careful, I'll follow you to death. And even beyond that. And then, with his free hand, the skeleton launched it forward at my gut, puncturing right through my tissue and flesh. I didn't scream, shout, or even make any movements. I just stood there as he tore me open. Look down, you fool, he demanded, retracting his arm from inside me. I did as told and darted my eyes south. Spilled out on the ground below me was not blood, my small intestine, or any gore of any kind. It was dollar bills. Ones, tens, fifties, hundreds all pouring their way out to my now torn open stomach. 
along with jewels, diamonds, rubies, and emeralds alike. All the riches a man could ever want. That's when I awoke in a cold sweat, my breathing heavy like a bull, and my eyes frantically darting around the dim lighting of my living room. Nothing but the flat screen television as a source. My hands were shaking. The curtains to my living room window were completely open, making me feel like a sitting duck in my own home. I quickly got up and darted toward the red-colored fabric, intending to slam them shut, but not before taking a peek outside. Across the street, there he stood, the skeleton, tipping his pirate hat to me as he gave a slow and taunting wave. I knew that he wouldn't harm me directly or try anything, but the way that he stared at me from across the street, the way that bony hand moved through the air as he waved side to side, it made my stomach churn like butter. Not to mention his teeth, looking all the more monstrous due to his lack of gums. It set off every primal alarm bell inside me, yet part of me now wishes that he would just kill me himself and get it over with. I'm pretty sure the saying goes, there are fates far worse than death, and this, this is one of them. I closed the curtains completely, breaking her eye contact. Although I used the term eye contact loosely, I tried to step away, go up into my bedroom and throw the covers over myself to cower like a small child. This psychological mind game was far worse than any physical pain or punishment. I would take the boiler room to hell itself over this. He said that he wouldn't do anything to harm me directly. I guess he only meant physically. Eventually, I did fall asleep that night. I almost switched to Christianity just to thank the Lord I didn't have another one of those godforsaken nightmares again. But that didn't mean that I slept well. No. It felt like my bed was carried in a raging tornado throughout the night. It was an intense struggle to get myself out of bed. But I did eventually manage. I decided to go back to the bar that morning. Take a shot at me all you want. But most people would do something similar. Try to find some way to escape their own mind, provided they were in my circumstances. When I arrived, there were no cars along the road. No pedestrian cars anyway. Just police cruisers. The yellow crime scene tables wrapped around the edges of a broken window, along with the front door that was seemingly forced open. I got out of my car, my mouth hysterically hanging open at what I was seeing. A female officer approached me with her left hand held out in front of her. Whoa, whoa, sir, please. I'm gonna have to ask you to step back. What happened? I insisted. Armed robbery, a couple of suspects attempted to get into the safe in the owner's office. One of the bartenders tried to stop him and was fatally shot. Do you happen to be a family member or relative of a Mr. Max Ivory? I froze at a loss for words. Once again, I didn't cry, break down, or mourn. I was simply confused. This time, more intensely than the last, what could he have possibly done to deserve his grim fate? Sir, the woman snapped her fingers. Are you alright? I broke out of my trance, looking over her shoulder and focusing on the damaged property. Yeah, sorry for interrupting. I'll head out now. 
For the first time since yesterday, I had checked my phone while walking back to my car, and the consequences of my ignorance were there, displayed right in front of me, on one simple notification. Shots fired in armed robbery incident at local bar on Redacted Street. 42-year-old male bartender confirmed dead. Now I know this had something to do with me. It had to. There were too many coincidences. Things weren't adding up. I got back in my car and I drove off. This time with no destination. No place in mind and no set route. I just drove where the roads decided to take me. Highways, back roads, neighborhoods, downtown. I didn't care. I just wanted to get far away from where I was. Just for my own sanity. I so desperately wanted to know what it was. What did I do to cause these people to die? Was it because I talked with them? Said the wrong thing or didn't use some sort of specific mannerism? There had to be some way to find out. Some clue or detail that I had missed. I know the skeleton had the answer, but he would hold it from me for whatever his twisted reasons he had. On my aimless journey, I finally stopped at a cliffside that dropped off into the ocean below. The paved road stopped about 60 feet before the edge. The cliff itself was a few hundred feet in height, the waves crashing and colliding with the pointing rocks below. I got out, grabbed a decent sized stone close to the driver's side door, and gripped it tightly as I walked towards the edge. The ocean seemed so much more vast, far bigger than at sea level. You don't truly realize the full scope until you're way up above it like this. But that wasn't the focus, not for the time being. No, I stomped my way over to the very edge of the cliff. Only a step or two more and I would dramatically plummet to a horrible yet swift death, being impaled on the rocks at the bottom. I squeezed the stone one final time before pulling back and throwing it off the cliff. My eyes tracked the stone, watching it lose its momentum and plummet into the ocean below. The splash was completely insignificant when it broke the surface of the water. Where are you? I screamed, threatening to burst my own vocal cords with the sheer force of my volume. Show yourself. Come back. I've had enough. I give. I can't take it anymore. I continued to bellow. No response of any kind. No change in scenery, foreign sounds, or the skeleton himself. Everything in front of me was as normal as can be. He wasn't going to show up. I wondered if he had decided to abandon me, letting me drown in the chaos of my own mind. What was once the psyche of a carefree simpleton who got lucky was now being crushed by the consequences of acting on my blissful ignorance. All I could do was blankly stare at the front window on my way back home. The sky became overcast during the trip. The city felt lifeless from my perspective. That's despite the fact that there were a multitude of cars and pedestrians going on about their business. I laid down on my couch and whipped my phone out of my pocket, beginning to research the story with the bar to find out more details. When I had searched Max's name, however, a GoFundMe donation page had been set up by Max's family, the intention being to use the money to pay for a nice funeral and casket for Max. I didn't know him well. 
But for once, just for once, I thought that I should do something different with my money. Maybe that was the solution to this problem. Maybe Max, who could be next? I couldn't have another drop of someone else's blood on my hands. It's been a test this entire time. To prove how little I care about my fellow man. Every time I spent the added fortune in a selfish manner, something bad would happen to whoever had accepted it. And I would have to live with the guilt of knowing my selfish actions were causing harm to others. I ended up donating $30,000. It honestly should have been more, way more. But there was something else that I needed to do too. I searched the name Havy Henderson. No GoFundMes or donation pages came up. So instead, I would drop off an anonymous donation. I truly hope that I was correct. I didn't deserve the credit for it anyway. Not even a little bit. In the corner of my eye, I caught the skeleton standing towards the back of my living room. Arms crossed and head tilted down at me. So, it seems like you finally learned, David. He announced, sounding somewhat impressed. Screw off, leave me alone. I said putting my phone down on the couch next to me and standing up. Oh, trust me, the skeleton said before slightly levitating off the floor. My time is up. I've served my purpose, so now you may serve yours. I took a step back as he nearly collided with the ceiling. David, he continued, you will not spend a cent more of that fortune on yourself. It will be used to help those who can't help themselves. Otherwise, you will witness the consequences of your greed firsthand. And next time, it won't be others. No, it'll be you. Don't mistake my teaching you a lesson for benevolence. I unclenched my fist, staring off into space as I listened to his grandiose monologue. I, I understand, I said weakly, accepting the prophecy of his statement, knowing that he was right yet again. Everything was me, David, it all was. I've had my eye on you for a very long time. The storm on the ocean, for example... Did you truly think stumbling upon the cave was some random accident? There is a pause of eerie silence for a moment between the two of us. Go, David, he demanded. Fulfill your newfound duties. I'm finished with you, unless, of course, you let your greed drive your choices. Then I will come back. After that, it'll be the last time you see me, or anything, ever again. And it won't be me that puts an end to your life, no. The universe will take care of that. Just as it did with Miss Haley and Mr. Max. And I doubt you would want to leave your way of perishing up to chance. The universe can be quite cruel. Before my response could be made, all the lights in the living room began to violently flicker on and off, only to return back to normal after a few short seconds. And once they did... The skeleton was gone, vanished without a trance, like he was never there. I know what I have to do now.